there, ladies and gentlemen, friends and listeners, and welcome to episode four of the Skill and Bones Radio Podcast, a monthly program dedicated to games and geek culture coming at you from the wet coast of Bellingham, Washington. My name is Bradley Lyons, and I am both a wandering sellsword currently in the employ of a ruthless bastard who gutted his own father and liege lord for funsies, and one of a trio of hosts speaking to you today. Sitting to my right is the scourge of the grass ocean, leader of the free people, and one of the last of the horse kings, a much more impressive title than driver of a Kia Sorento, Mr. Lauren Tinsley. Lauren, how are you? Uh, my Dothraki horde is doing fine, and myself. Many bells in my braid, thank you. And sitting across from me, a simple and unassuming creature that we have taken to calling Kevin because that's nearly all he ever says himself. There was a toss-up between that and X-Wing. Kevin, hi. Hi there. I'd like, to, Kevin, Kevin. I'd like to start off the show with a little pop quiz for our listeners, unlike the doozy that you two will have to face later. Whoever answers first by emailing us at skillandbonesradio at gmail.com or leaving a comment on the episode at skillandbonesradio.com or to SoundCloud or by leaving in a rating and review on iTunes, where we are now finally listed. Uh, will be entitled to a piece of resin terrain from Worldsmith Industries and one free bit of cosmically legitimate karma from the Skill and Bones Radio Dice Cauldron. Those prizes will be delivered to the person who correctly identifies what name the four episodes of the program that we have already recorded have in common. There is a name that runs throughout the course of all these four episodes. What is the one name that these episodes have in common? If you do enter by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, go ahead and shoot us an email as well so that we can get your details and send you things. So, guys, how's it been lately? What have you been playing? What are we doing? Uh, well, I've been playing a lot of Overwatch, I have to be honest. I'm a computer gamer, and uh, this one came out across my port bow, and I have been indulging in that. Uh, it's probably a reason why my sh- my show research isn't as good as I would like, so I'm blaming Overwatch. I also got stuck in pretty good on Overwatch, <laughs> and uh, I've been playing the PS4 version of it, uh, the beta, uh, the open beta, which uh, was last week that it all opened up. Mm-hmm. You had early access to it. Mm-hmm. You were, uh, you've were you been in for a few extra days over the rest of us. Yep. And I gotta say, they have nailed this game in such a beautiful way. I know that there's a lot of concern and worry out there that there's not $60 worth of content on this thing. The PC version's only 40 bucks, though, isn't it? Uh, no, it was full 60 my Full friend. 60 Oh, okay. But I'm, I'm seeing lots of maps. I'm seeing a, a horde of characters that I am absolutely enjoying the hell out of. Give me a few minutes to just expand on that. Um, yeah. The maps. What did you think of the maps? Gorgeous, for one yes, thing. absolutely. Blizzard-level um, blizzard maps. Right? Blizzard-level maps. I, I, I'm liking the fact that I'm seeing day and night options for them across n- a number of them. I'm not sure that I've run across all of them yet, to be honest. There's just... I, I didn't play a whole lot of Team Fortress 2 or any of the other uh, team shooters, uh, so this is kind of a new entry foray for me to really get into it. So I can't really compare them to stuff that's been out before, but, I mean, I'm having a really good time with them, so the maps must be entertaining enough. I think that some of them are kind of long, a little bit stretched out uh, to the point where this it's got this whole uh, mechanic where you, you've got to respawn and get back up to the yep. front. And there's so there's a little bit of time that it takes to run up to the front and not every character can just flat out sprint there, you know? And so, that, so some of them do feel a little bit sprawling, a little bit distant, but I'm having a really good time with it, so. But balance. So you haven't said that some maps felt unfair while others felt so I, they seem fit balanced to you? I so far, so good. I, I haven't played enough of it to really say that I've played long enough on one map to know it enough to, to oh. really feel over that one side is overpowered uh, versus the other. And the map the matches are so quick, yes. you know, so frantic and quick. Yes. And you play both sides attacking and defending no matter what. So balance seems fine, you know, to me. 
I really enjoy the quick, the fast pace of the, of the matches as well. Even if you get stuck with bad teammates, it's over in three minutes. So you yeah. suffer through that. Yeah. Anything else you've been playing a lot of lately? No, that's really taken up the majority, up the majority of your time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that Overwatch, the characters, the tropes are all great too. Um, some of them, I think, seem overpowered when you start first start playing, but I think they're all broken in the right way. Yeah. Every single, uh, every single one. Yeah. They've got themselves a nice little character shooter there. I mean, it's great. Nothing to complain about. Mr. X-Wing. Yeah, that's right. Just playing, just plugging away on it, some X-Wing, getting ready for uh, regionals at the end of this month. When is that? Memorial Day weekend down in Tacoma. There's a two-day convention. How many people are going to that? From Bellingham? Yeah. There's four of us planning on uh, rooming together down there, but I think there's going to be a few others. Um, there was a guy I met last Tuesday that was planning on going down there and stuff, so I'm not quite sure exactly the total. Eight. Press four plus? Yeah. Should be a good time. Yep. Finally zeroing in on the... I think I got the list figured out, but now it's the playtesting and seeing if I can actually make it work. I got in a game of X-Wing last oh. week. I managed to swing one with Joey and uh, get my skull... Handed to me yeah. um, in a very decisive and unfortunate <laughs> loss to Joey. Yeah, um, Joey's gotten really good in the last like year and a half, two years. I feel like I've finally gotten down the turn templates and the moving, and just getting ships to where I want them to be. But then list building is not something that I'm in any way good at. Yeah, me either. And, <laughs> I high five uh, to our listeners. Uh, there. <laughs> I was support gamer support. Yeah, yeah. I've got a I've got a real problem when it comes to that. Basically, I'll just pull out uh, this the stack of cards that I had set aside and say, this looks like, like something I enjoyed last time, and it turns out that it was not something that worked for me. <laughs> I just uh, never went back and rebuilt my list. Gotcha. Uh, but you know what? I, I fly spaceships. I make pew-pew noises. It's good. That's step one. Yeah. Are you are you flying basically the same list over and over then? Yes. There's a lot to say about that. Yeah, if you actually do it enough that you remember the lessons that you learned last time, but I'm not getting into the game enough that, that I'm doing that. On a total side, and I know precious time here do you think that x-wing players would would appreciate like a mini like you go to a regional or whatever but there's tournaments based on uh, waves like a, a first wave tournament or and a second wave tournament. now that's kind of cool yeah. I, I think that's something that gw should look into like first edition second and third edition yeah. tournaments as well to keep those you know yes there's an element like you have to buy the new ships to keep the game alive and moving forward absolutely yeah. but there's something I think to be said for wave one tournament that's a really interesting idea kind of like a Magic the Gathering sort of approach yeah. to it, where you come up with the different formats I mean eventually the game could be saturated enough where they almost need to do that um, you know you have your your sort of free for all style but they could easily yeah split it up by waves or create lists of you know what ships or upgrades or whatever aren't acceptable in certain formats or whatever I can see that happening for sure I like it other thing we've played lately we played a, a couple of rounds of the uh, Game of Thrones board game Ooh, that was fun yeah we played for Kevin's birthday happy birthday again happy Kevin. birthday Kevin. oh thanks guys um, but we I will talk about those sword. I took away your sword <laughs> We will talk more about those in a little while um, as we get into the meat of the show. Before that, though, we're going to talk about the show, Game of Thrones. We're going to talk about the books, Game of Thrones. We're going to talk all things... Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones. Oh my goodness. What's this? What's this? A song of ice and fire. What's this? A show called Game of Thrones. Who's this? A man he's called Ned Stark and winter's coming. Look out, Ned, this isn't fair! What's this? What's this? Who's this? A tiny little pimp. Who's this? Oh, this must be the imp. What's this? Queen Cersei and her brother are caught banging. Bran is pushed, his back gets broken, and this act won't go unspoken. What is this? 
WorldSmithIndustries.com, originally created after a couple of successful Kickstarters. They're makers of terrain resin for tabletop wargaming. Current offerings include a variety of walls, water features, and some scatter terrain. The area terrain system involves a number of area terrain bases into which you can plug things like trees and rocks and giant crystals. There are also blank bases that can be used to make custom inserts or just make some open space. You can mix and match. It's easy to make a variety of terrain types just by switching out inserts. Because it's resin, it's a lot more durable than a lot of scratch-built terrain. It's highly detailed and really easy to paint. Skill and Bones listeners can get 10% off their orders by entering the code SKILLANDBONES at checkout. Go to WorldSmithIndustries.com. I am a big fantasy genre reader, or at least I used to be. I started this way back when I was 12 years old, and I've been reading some pretty hefty tomes ever since. 800 plus pages. Stock standard fantasy novel. Right. (laughs) It's not going to break your back to carry it on a backpack in your bag, you know, then it's not worthwhile. Um, You know what I think it is? I think it's it's the 12-year-old geek self-defense kit. If you can turn around (laughs) and just slam your backpack against whoever's taunting you and uh, and just destroy them in one blow, then you're a true fantasy reader. Right? It's like Game of Thrones, bitch. (laughs) Break you. I was out of stuff to read. I was stuck in, uh, I was in the Marine Corps, stuck in 29 Palms. Uh, all my fantasy books I'd already reread and all my favorites that I'd brought with me to that station. And I saw this book at the store and it had a lone rider on a horse and he had black hair. And if you flipped it over, there was a white wolf on the back. It was called a Game of Thrones. And it taunted me for, for months. I didn't pick it up initially. I thought it didn't sound fantasy enough for me. I needed magic and dragons and all this crap. But eventually I gave in in 1996 and bought a Game of Thrones and it blew my mind. The first volume was amazing. Back before the internet was big, uh, I read it a lot of times. I suggested it to everybody I came across. It was my, my go-to at a party. Believe it or not, I actually got chicks with this. Read a Game of Thrones and we could talk about it later and we did. But it was murder of mouth. It was always word of mouth. No one had ever heard of this book ever before. And so I put Martin on my list of uh, to look for whenever I visited um, a bookstore, book, um, Barnes & Noble, uh, whatever it was that I, I happened to run across. And lo and behold, he came out pretty regularly with books. The first one came out in 96. The next one came out in 99. And I just picked it up with all my other reading at that time, which was Robert Jordan, pretty much. Not anything TSR, but quite a bit TSR, I'll be honest. I don't judge. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. (laughs) So I wasn't reading all good stuff. And he came out pretty regularly with books, you know, at an acceptable pace. Which for me, for many of the authors I was reading at the time, they'd they'd take about two years to come out with a a Bible-sized tome. And all was good for the first three books. And then things started to slow down. I've done some research, and when Robert Jordan, not Robert Jordan, excuse me, George R.R. R. Martin came out with his series, it was a failure. The only reason that he went further is because of fan word of mouth. Really? Really. Before 2011, before the show was, came out, he had about 5 million copies sold worldwide, which is nothing. Yeah. Um, Robert Jordan currently has 80 million plus copies of his books worldwide wait so how many of his books how many of uh, george rr R. martin's books had sold five million yeah only five million across all the books combined across all the books combined as of 2011 how many books was that at by at that point like was he up to book four book book oh five? that's an excellent point excellent point i can tell you that was after dance of dragons came out oh, okay so that was all of them at that point. wow yeah huh i wonder why they even bothered to pick it up in the first place because as you found out with on that weekend yeah, okay, so that first book really was, I mean, it really just grabs you, right? It really does. I had something here. I, I went through the first 
I just want to talk about the, the, what he introduced in that first book. Okay, yes, really um, quick. I'm going to lead up, read off a list of names and just picture in your mind these characters that you know now from the books or from the show, the names and places that that he introduced to us. Okay, I'm going to do it chronologically here. All right, we got Garrett, we got Sir Waymore Royce, Will, Lord Mormont, The Wall, The Night's Watch, The White Walkers, Robert Baratheon, Bran Stark, Mance Raider, Old Man, Rob Stark, Jon Snow, Lord Eddard Stark, Theon Greyjoy, Jory Castle, Winterfell, Riverrun, Wildlings, a whole mess of direwolves, Hullen, <laughs> Sir Roderick, Desmond, Caitlin Stark. Wouldn't that be a litter of direwolves? <laughs> the, the Old Gods and the New, The Godswoods. Arya Stark, Sansa Stark, Rickon Stark, Benjen Stark, Master Lewin, Ice, John Aaron, Mad King Aerys Targaryen, Lord Hoster Tully, Maester Pycelle, the Eerie, Lysa Aaron, Cersei Lannister, Casterly Rock, Prince Tommen Baratheon, Daenerys Targaryen, Viserys Targaryen, Vase Dothrak, Caldrogo, the Dothraki, the Seven Kingdoms, Highgarden, King's Landing, Dorne, the Isle of Faces, Dragonstone, Bravos, Myr, Tyrosh, Cohor, Volantis, Rhaegar Targaryen, Sir William Derry, Magister Ilro, the Lord of Light, Calmoro, and Sir Jorah Mormont. This is the first 30 pages of the, of the Game of Thrones. And a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> I mean, in the next 20 pages, you start getting the Lannisters in there. You start getting the, the real plot lines that start to explode out of that. You, you get the secret revelation of the murder of John Aaron by the hand of the Queen from a grief-stricken widow around page 50, you know, which launches us into this massive series. Yeah. But, I mean, that is a ton of stuff to yeah. just bombard us with. See, but, that's, that's, I've got a very different experience with, with fantasy uh, genre. Like, I'm not a big fantasy reader. You generally stay with the graphic novels. Is that, am I wrong with this? Um, not, like a fantasy yeah, reader. I guess that's fair to say, but like, I, I, I'm more of a niche reader. Like, I, you know, played, war, played Warhammer and, and 40K, and so I've read a shitload of fantasy, of Warhammer fantasy books and a shitload of Warhammer 40K books, but like, didn't branch out too much into the broader fantasy realm. From my experience, that genre of book or that type of book is very much like the Wizards of the Coast and the TSR books. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I know that it wasn't, like, high-quality reading. Oh, yeah. It was just, you know, it was something that I was already interested in. But one thing that I... The reason I don't really like reading a bunch of fantasy novels is because I feel like most fantasy authors have a really hard time separating what's important for the story versus what's important to them. Yeah. You know, and okay. they, like... So there'll be page after page after page going into this these in-depth histories and lore that they've developed, they spent years of their lives developing, but it's not really relevant to the story. But with Martin, I didn't get that impression at all. While he does have a ton of content in there, it all somehow goes together better than a Tolkien book, in my opinion. Because Tolkien Tolkien will will go off, if Tolkien goes on for more than like a few paragraphs, I can't, I I forget what I've read. No one's one's ever reread a Tolkien book. (laughs) Ever. They read like history books. I know all respect to the godfather of modern fantasy. All respect, but the guy who was wrote it was dry as hell. I yeah. agree. It's yeah. terrible to read. I found that I was able to to when I was a, in high school, I was able to read Tolkien basically by skipping every other chapter, and I was fine with that. Yeah, you know, I got I got about as much out of it as uh, as I think I needed. Yeah, and Martin has obviously has the same level of creation and level of backstory and everything like that, but for some reason it just doesn't it doesn't stick out the same way it does with most fantasy authors. Have you read all the books? All the the Game of Thrones books? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the first book, I'd agree with you, but he starts to fall off super hard on all the same things that you just mentioned. Yeah. I've read them all. It didn't... It still never really stuck out to me. I mean, granted, I'm not going to say the books are all equally as good. I'm just saying that the hitting you over the head with the lore, 
I don't recall ever getting bogged down because of that. Fair enough. That was your experience. Yep. But I also not don't read nearly as much fantasy as you do, so I'm... To be honest, I kind of lost interest after the second book. Right? And then the debacle of the Feast of Crows. I yeah. mean, no... I, he, he was universally poorly received on that book. Yeah. That was, like, the biggest debacle. And then he came back with A Dance of Dragons, which I didn't think was enough to balance out the crap that was A Feast of Crows. Well, because Dance of Dragons was the other half of that coin, right? I mean, he took one book, mm-hmm. realized it was way too big, and split it into two books. And he took half the characters from, you know, and put them into book four. And it was all the characters we didn't really care about, for mm-hmm. the most part, except for, I think, Tyrion was, like, the only, like main character that, that people there, actually... There was one character, I can't remember who it was. I think you it was Tyrion. Be, you could be right about Tyrion. That you're like, okay, I'll keep reading this because there's Tyrion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah. oh, finally it's a Tyrion chapter. That would be enough for me. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. In the and then the fifth book was all the other characters and then for the first two-thirds of it and then the last third... Oh, you know, it was Arya in, in book four because Arya is not in most of book five and then I think she's in like the last third of it and I remember like giving myself a high five when when Arya was back into book five. Yeah, I'm excited for the character she will become. Yeah. And that's what really drives it, though. Everything that was started in book one. There's not been much that's been developed in two, three, four, five, however you want to count those those books that have been like, oh, I want to find out what happens because of that. Yeah. It's all drives back to the original book. And it took him a decade to polish those turds. <laughs> it was a long wait. I never really yeah. even got into the series. I, I I only honestly went back and started reading the books again last month. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. I, like I said, I'd read the original book when it came out, or uh, the year after, 97. And then I, I, there was nothing else for me to read. Mm-hmm. Three years, even, was a big gap for me to, to try and keep up for it. By that point, I'd forgotten all about the fact that I had uh, ever been into this guy. And just never went back to that well. So when I went back to, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I picked this up. We were on vacation and I took the books down to read and listen to. I, I started the second book uh, reading it and then finished it via the audiobooks. Oh, man, let me tell you. These are another point of conflict that kind of mirror the uh, the print books. Because when you go in, when you get into these audiobooks, these are read by, uh, let me find the guy's name really quick here. Is he good? Because some of those readers are good and some of those yeah, readers some are not good. <laughs> Roy Dotrice, so is his name. He read the first three books. And then they got somebody else for the fourth book. I mean, that's a big no-no in the audiobook world. Mm-hmm. Because you get used to hearing what characters sound like and you get used to, you know, you can start to recognize them just by the voices that they do. And this guy does, he does all right voices. I like I like him well enough. I, I listen to the books at about 1.5 speed because a lot of audiobooks are read very slowly for uh, slower audiences uh, to listen to. Uh, so picking it up at 1.5 speed, they do, it does pitch up the voices a little bit. And, you know, at some point, well, honestly, his Tyrion does sound like a leprechaun. And <laughs> that is um, disconcerting considering the character, but it's also especially so during the sex scenes. Anyway, uh, Roy Dotrice, they, they, they got somebody else for book four. And then they realized that the, that people didn't like that. And they got him back to a re-record book four. And they brought him on uh, for book five as well. Um, the problem is, is that during his vacation there, he either forgot the voices that he had done initially or had moved on and was just doing them completely differently. And so people were really upset about this because suddenly their characters didn't sound like they were supposed to sound like anymore. And that really throws people off in the audiobooks uh, series. There's a couple of other series that I've listened to where they've just completely changed it up in the middle and you're like, what is going on here? Hmm. So anyway, it kind of uh, mirrors the print books in that it starts out strong, but then sort of all falls apart uh, in a brown book four. 
just to be fair to Martin, I uh, I compare him to Jordan a lot because they were putting out the same size tomes at the, the same time. Approximately, Robert Jordan doubled the output that Martin did in the same time frame. Also, uh, and you see you see a lot of his defenses. I worked on other projects. You've never heard of any of Martin's other books, have you? I've I know I've heard the names of them, but. I keep on seeing his name like on other people's books as editing and that kind of thing, but I have no idea what else he's written. No. Wild Card. It's the Wild Card series. Mm. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Ever ever heard of it? No. Exactly. That doesn't ring a bell. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I What are you trying to say, Lauren? I'm I can't imagine that his fandom for the Wild Card series is better than its fandom for the Game of Thrones. So he should be working on the series that gave him his bread and butter. Oh, he should okay. be working on. So his when when was he writing these other ones? Alongside of uh, all the other stuff. Oh, at the same time. Yeah, at the same time. Oh, okay. One last bit I want to say about that. I think that Martin in A Game of Thrones, their first book, painted a beautiful, beautiful world, rich backstory, rich future. I think it got away from him. I was watching uh, on the season five special features. They Inside were, the episode. Yeah. Well, no, they were talking about how in writing Game of Thrones, he borrowed a lot of uh, historical references and um, historical scenes and, and turned them into moments from Game of Thrones. Um, mm-hmm. Like his big inspiration was the War of the Roses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the British Civil War. And the big one was the for the Red Wedding. There's a uh, thing in Scottish history. There's an event called, I think, the Black The Black Feast. Dinner. The Black, Black Dinner. Dinner. And if you want, I can read it from George Martin's own words here. Okay. One was a case called the Black Dinner. The King of Scotland was fighting the Black Douglas clan. He reached out to make peace. He offered the young Earl of Douglas safe passage. He came to Edinburgh Castle and had a great feast. Then at the end of the feast, the king's men started pounding on a single drum. They brought out a covered plate and put it in front of the earl and revealed it was the head of a black boar, the symbol of death. And as soon as he saw it, he knew what it meant. They dragged him out and put him to death in the courtyard. The larger instance was the Glencoe Massacre. Clan MacDonald stayed with the Campbell clan overnight and the laws of hospitality supposedly applied. But the Campbells arose and started butchering every MacDonald they could get their hands on. No matter how much I make up, there's stuff in history that's just as bad or worse. Yeah. So yeah, that the change he made with that is in that event the uh, the people that were the guests rose up and killed the uh, killed the, the hosts, hosts. Yeah, and he just kind of switched it for the red wedding. Sure. You know, he so he takes all these historical references, these historical cultures, and everything like that, and kind of twists them and makes his own fantasy realm, uh, and and the beginnings of this of this story out of it. But then, like after those events transpire, then you are now you've got the same batch of characters, and it's like well. Do you search desperately for other historical events that, that you, you can might have them, apply them to? Yeah, and have them just kind of go, you know, string those along, or right. do you actually, you know, branch out and start writing your own story? And I think, so. could you, would you almost say that he developed his characters for those events, and then, like you're saying, since they've gone through those events, what do you do with those characters? Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe that's a bit of uh, why he sort of struggled in the later books. So now it? that he's had to get to pure pure fantasy of his own creation, yeah. that he doesn't have the historical things to fall back on, is kind of. A... I keep going back to that as why you know part of the reason I haven't ever really gotten into that genre is because they created these like really really rich worlds, and it's so important in that genre specifically okay. that they have a really hard time not only separating the you know the wheat from the chaff but also they struggle with pacing and things like that because they just can't decide what's actually relevant and what's not my favorite example of of him sort of being a bad self editor and in favor of the depth of the world that he's created is the uh, the broken tower in winterfell as a as a setting makes no sense 
so that's where that's where Jamie and Cersei are where yeah. Bran comes comes across them, right? Yeah. And so the whole time leading up to that, Bran's climbing from tower to tower and he's talking about this broken tower. It got hit by lightning and it collapsed inward. The stairwell is filled with with debris, so you can't climb up from the inside. The only way to get inside the broken tower is to climb into it. So what are, what are the Lannisters doing? What are they? What are the Lannisters doing in there? How do they get in there? And so for like several pages, he's describing this broken tower and 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 all this rich detail, what it looks like, and everything like that, and how Bran's the only person who can get in there. And then he's and then he climbs in. Oh, there's people here, and it's just like, why? Wait, what? <laughs> Didn't you just say that he's the only guy that can get in here? Ain't no rubble gonna stop the Kingslayer. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> is. Yeah, he's, oh, he's slaying him. <laughs> yeah, he is. Um, <laughs> Queenslayer. Anyway, so that's uh, that's kind of the the point I always go back to in describing kind of my my beef with Martin, but it's it seems to be throughout the entire. Is that genre. he gets into the deep details and then suddenly overlooks a massive gaping hole in his... Yeah. The the, the plot suffers because the lore is more important. Huh. Um, right. they, they can't take that step back and, and, and really analyze like what's actually important, what's not, and, and how to trim that fat. That's why you have editors. Right. And, and it seems like the editors took, you know, less and less control of those books as they went on. Because an editor should have realized really early on the arc that book four was taking and what a whale it was going to become and saying, no, 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 you need to find a way not to separate all of this fat into two lumps of fat, but to literally trim some of this stuff out and make a more streamlined book four. So that book five, isn't this like apology that, you know, trying to make up for it, that it, that it ended up being. He, um, from what I've read, research that he it just got too big it, it got away from him yeah and he but when, by the time he it came to print he's like what am i gonna do yeah. and then the result in four and five books four and five are, are, are that mistake yeah it's just like what do i do this is what yeah. i'm gonna do i guess it wasn't one of you guys but somebody was talking to me about that uh, about the role of the editor there and uh saying that it just like with somebody like stephen king where if you reach a certain level of success that your editors just want to leave your you know be hands off despite the fact that it was the editors that got you there to begin with you know that helped you to maybe contain yourself but the thing is that given the numbers that you were talking about earlier it sounds like he hadn't reached that level of success by the time that he started to go off the rails and so the editors probably should have been on top of him a little bit more yeah would agree with everything you just said yeah but I mean, I've heard that he's a notoriously slow writer yep. and like procrastinates. Yep. Apparently, I heard the other day that he's a gigantic American football fan and uh, takes off pretty much the entire football season. I didn't uh, know that one. Thank you. To from he takes a, a break from writing during that whole season and and now with the show, the success of the show too. I mean, he's got all kinds of obligations with that, going to various cons, panels. I mean, that's his documents. prerogative, right? You yeah. Know? But oh, totally. in the same way, it's our prerogative to bitch about it on a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, he writes episodes. I mean, he's got all of these other dis- distractions on top of it. And um, so for me, I've got, like, I'm no, I was never a huge fan of the books. I had a friend, a couple friends that were pushing me to read them for years. And I was just like, I don't really want to. I don't really want to. And I finally watched the show. 
And it wasn't until after I watched the show that I decided to actually read the books. Eventually, they, they wore me down. I decided to give it a shot. So I guess it works out to have a writing staff and editors and producers and all that other kinds of things right. breathing down your neck in order to really draw the people in. Yeah. Thank you for the uh, the extra nugget of hate about the football season off. Thank you. I'll yeah. hold that one close. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that one. Yeah. So I've got, yeah, who knows if he's going to finish this series, but at this point... You know, the show's already passed him, and um, I'm hitching my, my wagon to the show. I'd rather watch that. It seems like it does a better job of telling the same story. So I agree with that. So, And I strongly believe that HBO getting a hold of the rights for that story is the best thing that ever happened to that story. Oh, yeah. Super excited. I wouldn't be a fan of Game of Thrones if, if not for that show. Like I, like I said, I mean, that's how I got into it. Well, let's talk more specifically about the show after a quick break. Big Gregor Clegane is a warrior they call him the mountain that rides and you do well to stay the hell out of his way or he might just hack out your insides when the king went and called for a tournament Gregor rode out to joust with Sir Hugh. As the horses advanced, Gregor slipped with his lance and just happened to run him clean through. La 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 dee da. La 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 dee da. So, how do you guys feel about the show diverging from the books? It depends on what the how it diverges, but I think that they. Trying to take those mammoth novels and jam them into a 10-episode season is a pretty ambitious task, and I think they did a really good job, first of all, of taking the hundreds of characters, thousands of cre- characters that he's created, and sometimes rolling them all into one character. Mm-hmm. Like, Davo Seaworth in the book has four sons, mm-hmm. and then in the show he only has the one. Right, right. You know, because you don't really need to have four different characters when you can have one. And they and they do a, a good job of that of people. consolidating the extras. Yeah, and and then and just trimming out a lot of the the nonsense. I'm trying to think like with Arya, I know that they cut out a huge section of her just sort of wandering around. I think in the Riverlands before she meets up with the Hound. Well, no, no, uh, in, right? Her her survival in uh, Old Town actually after the fall. She she was in Old Town for like a month or something like that. She would kill uh, with her practice fencing thing. She would kill pigeons. And trade pigeons in, oh, for and a flea bomb. Yeah, flea bomb. Excuse me. I was gonna say old yeah, towns yeah, across yeah, yeah. the continent. Yeah, flea bomb. My bad. My mistake. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. old flea towns, bomb. high garden territory. Oh my bad. You know your yeah. map. <laughs> That's something I I really appreciate about having played the game. I know I'm a little bit for later. Go for it, man. The map of Westeros. And how in the hell are the White Walkers only a Westerosi issue? How does does that connect anywhere else? Is that just like, oh, I don't I don't think it connects map? anywhere else. It's just there are what the the Seven Kingdoms own special little problem. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, that's why they're able to build a wall. You know, instead of instead of them coming down through Essos and coming across the south southern land bridge or something like that. Because this is my only th- issue with the show over the books is in the books they make a point of saying that the the seasons. Are, are much different than how they are on Earth. The seasons in the books are years long. Yeah, yeah and this is really messed up. And this is a big damn deal because we are at, the story takes place at the end of the longest summer in human recorded history. It's like a 50-year, 80-year summer, something like yeah, that. Yeah. It's extremely long, and you get none of that in the show. No, no, Zero. you can't really get any sense of that. 
And this is something I, I went back and I took a look why, you know, what's the deal with the seasons in Westeros? And a number of different astrophysicists went and took a look at what is wrong with this planet that they're living on such that the seasons could potentially be 50 years long. Because they do have multiple references for lengths of time in there. It's been a year since their name day. It's been 20 years since their name day. You know, years exist. There, there is the orbit of whatever planet this thing is around the sun. So what these astrophysicists decided was that the planet that they're on has got an inconsistent wobble to it and that there is a shifting of the axis of this planet that goes back and forth over the course of 50 years such that it manages to maintain a constant facing towards the sun over the course of 50 years and then suddenly will shift off to the other direction and you'll get winter for the next 20 years or something like that. I really like that. Really <laughs> it was the only thing that they could really come up with that made any sense for why you could have a constant rotation around the sun and have a season that would last longer than half of that span, you know. Yeah. Of course, it's explained when presented with that. George R. R. Martin said, it's just magic. It's just magic. Just go with the magic, that's, okay? It's just that's what magic. I assumed. It's, so. it's a fantasy book for fuck's sake. Yes. We don't need to bring astrophysics into this. That's my only issue with the between the show and the books. They, period. I guess, they, yeah, they probably don't address it head on, but I don't think... They never talk about it. When it's officially winter... They release the the White Ravens, and there's an episode where they do that. I can't remember who it is that decides that it's officially wintertime, but they send out a White Raven. To In order to announce the, the, the beginning arrival. of winter? Yeah. Probably the headmaster at the uh, Citadel, I'd assume. I think they might mention it being a long summer or something like that, but yeah, they don't think that they give you any sort of time reference that I can recall. But There is also a cleverer, but much rarer species of, of White Raven. Oh, here we go which the conclave of maesters dispatch from their headquarters at the Citadel in Old Town only when they agree that Nailed the it. season has turned. A committee. Also, I wish they... I know they couldn't for a sake of the story, but I would love to have saved Oberyn. He's, he's my favorite. I know a lot of people love Tyrion, but Oberyn was my st- style of rascal. Oberyn? Uh-huh. Yeah. Martell? Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. I know, when I, when I read that part in the book... I had really mixed feelings about it because I loved the Red Viper and wanted him to live, mm. but I also really was enthralled with the mountain being just the mount, a mountain of a man and just right. being such a complete badass that he was run through and still had the, the strength to... Uh, I believe in the book he actually punched his fist into the guy's skull rather than crushing it against the ground. Um, I think he was holding him by the shoulder and... And, uh, just, just punched, punched through his face. Punched through his face. Yeah, I, I like that also because it showed the mountain was at least an animal level of cunning. Yeah. Because he couldn't win at a distance. That spear, Oberyn was owning him. He had to lure him close and then just brute strength. That was a great fight. Yeah, yeah it really it was. was a great fight scene. Yeah. Well choreographed. Yeah. One thing that the show, because I, like I said, I didn't read all the books. Uh, the show presented very well the uh, bromance between Jamie Lannister and Bronn uh, as they... Uh, I love Bronn too. He's yeah. so great. You mean Tyrion Lannister? No, no. I'm talking about Jamie. After Jamie gets his hand cut off, and oh, they yeah. and they and they're out there in the dunes and uh, and, and oh uh, right, right, learning to work together. Yeah, um, that was they, they were just fantastic together. Yeah, and that's one thing that they did in the show is they gave Braun a much larger because it was it was Ilan Payne that had trained him to fight again after he'd lost his hand, and Ilan Payne hasn't has barely been in the show at all. Yeah, for he seasons. So. And they turned that over. To, they turned that role over to Braun. And yeah. I think that's great. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Braun's an awesome character. I loved him in the book, and I was glad that he got a bigger part in the show. Did you know that the guy who played Braun in the show belonged to a duop duo that actually had, I think, it was three number one singles on the UK charts? Oh, oh really? Yeah. yeah. Good for him. <laughs> 
Uh, and I like uh, his interactions with the, the young sand snakes, too. Yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I was like, whoa, ladies. <laughs> Get him, bro. Yeah, he's, he's, he's one of my faves. I have um, heard complaints from people that have fallen off from the show around the fourth season that they sort of got tired. Is there something with fours with this guy that the that the uh, that the book you know kind of tails off and that the audiobook switches narrators and that the uh, yeah it's a curse that the, that the show gets a little bit slow, a little bit boring. You know when you butcher all the protagonists in one scene in the in the third season, third book, it you know. really is hard to come back. I mean, yeah. you're left with a precious few protagonists left to really follow and root for. Yeah. And uh, I mean, who who did you have left after the after the Red Wedding? You had like yeah, Jon Snow. You had Arya. Yeah, but uh, no I started Sansa to either. It's like root for Sansa. No, I started <laughs> to really like Jamie around that same time. That's though. where they started to make him make his face turn. His redemption, if you will. If you will, I prefer the wrestling term. But there <laughs> <you go. laughs> fair enough. One part I was a little bummed about in the show, though. I don't know how far we want to get into spoilers here or I, how current, but I've never been. Born. All right, well, <laughs> listeners. If you haven't, if you're not caught up on the show, it's your own fault. You know, at the end of end of the last season of the show, and at the end of the fifth book, Jon Snow gets gets stabbed to death, and I had no idea what they were going to do about it. Like I didn't, it didn't occur to me that about, they would kill off Jon Snow right then. Well, no, but what they were going to do about it, like, because you can't just kill off all of the Starks. You're going to lose all of your fans yeah. if you just kill every single one of them, and then that's it. You know, yeah, it was a little uh, bit of a what the hell moment. Yeah, and so I was like, "What are they going to do here?" And it didn't occur to me that they would have Melisandre breathe new life into him or whatever. And then somebody mentioned that, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense." And I was almost like a little bit let down in the show when that happened, just because I was like, "Oh, well, I guess, I guess that is the answer to that." Yeah, you know? yeah. I appreciated that she was crushed that it wasn't Stannis though, because she truly believed. Yeah, and yeah. then Melisandre turning into a hag. Yeah. That one coming either. One other bit of speculation that I'm kind of hoping on some level comes true is that the Hound's death is pretty ambiguous in both yeah, the show yeah. and in, well, less so in the show because he's pretty fucked up. Mm. But in the in the book, he's, you know, it's it's very ambiguous in that. But he's he dies sort of in the same rough area as where Thoros is, or in mm. that part of the continent. Okay. And there's speculation that maybe Thoros will find the Hound dead and bring him back. And then the hound, zombie Hound and, and zombie, zombie Mountain what? will, uh, will uh, at some point meet up. And I'm down to see that. Just because another another duel with the Hound and with the Mountain sounds good to me. And then and then bring in Snow and you just got this massive zombie fight? What's Yeah, sure. Uh, why sure, not? why not? I heard read somewhere that John was supposed to be a ward anyways, like Bran. I thought that... For some odd reason, his spirit was going to be with Wolf. So oh, that John was going to take over like ghosts. Oh, you said Warg. I thought you said Ward. No, war, a Warg. That's what oh, they're okay. calling the, the shapeshifter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah. the Lord of the Bones. He was a Warg too. He could go to yeah. his hawk. But uh, that John was one of those as well, as well as, well as Bran. That both of them were. That's... Yeah, Warg is one of those words that hasn't actually come up in the in the show as much as it has come up in the books. Yes, yeah, they, they talk about it a lot more in the in books. the in the books than they do. Also, Aurochs. Do you what know what an do you know what an Aurochs is? It's I want to say a cow or something. It's uh, some sort of big animal like that. Bison? It was actually an existing animal. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, it used to exist. Sort of dire wolves, for that matter. Yeah. Bos primogenius. They were an early form of uh, cattle that ex- that uh, inhabited Europe, Asia, and North Africa. They had these massive racks of horns, this massive, huge set of horns. And they were livestock for centuries and centuries, but they've been they have been dated to about two million years ago in India, wow. and then they went to extinct in the fifteenth uh, century. Were they larger than 
the typical bovine? Yes, they were larger than the typical bovine. They During the Holocene, uh, aurochs from Denmark and Germany had an average height at the shoulders of about 61 to 71 inches. Sorry. It's bigger than the cow. I mean, I'm sure there's cows nowadays that are bigger with... Oh, I'm sorry. Last recorded live aurochs uh, female died in 1627, not 14, not 14, oh, wow. 1627 uh, in, uh, in Poland. And although, <laughs> this was the other thing I read today, was that uh, Nazi scientists attempted to bring them back. Hitler had, had this geneticist and farmer uh, named uh, Heck, was his last name, that attempted to crossbreed uh, various cows and bring back the aurochs of old in order to build this uh, German super cow. An Aryan cow? An Aryan cow. <laughs> and the cows that they raised, hex cows, as they came to be known, uh, were actually too aggressive and murderous, and they had to put the lot of them down. <laughs> so, that sounds like the perfect Aryan cow. <laughs> yeah, so there's your story for today, was that Hitler ordered the uh, resurrection of an ancient line of cows, and brought about uh, Nazi murder cows. I wish uh, the Iron Skies people had done a little bit more research and got that in yeah. the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why it wasn't very good. Nazi, <laughs> Nazi super cow stampede on the moon. That's right. what we were looking for. Do we have other stuff we want to talk about books or show about? I, I'm really enjoying it. I loved every season of the show. Um, I will continue to enjoy it. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the story will end with the show. I don't know if I'll... Well, I mean, they, they've, they, apparently the producers know how the story ends, right? I mean, Broad strokes. Yeah. No, 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 I mean, he told them. He did. Yeah, you know, Martin told the producers of the show in case he doesn't make it and you know his heart could give out at any minute. Yeah. Um, Robert Jordan's wake up called every author. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. But that makes you wonder, though, if, if the last, you know, this season and whatever else is left for the series, I'm not sure how many more seasons they're Aren't contracted seven. for. Seven series from the sounds of these. Actually, I saw something that says seven and eight, so oh, they good. could go eight with it. Oh, okay. But they have got it kind of plotted out where they're going to go. So. Yeah. But anyway, I, I'm curious how true to Martin's vision the show will be. Are they going to try to hit it on the head in case he does die so that they, the ending is at least the same? Or are they going to continue with their, well, we'll do a little bit of that, but we're going to do a little bit of this too. At that so point, who's to say that they you know can't go either way? I mean, if, if he only told them, then you know they can have it end however they want. Yeah. I, I'm just curious, you know, with... If, if more books come out, when they come out, how similar they will be to the show. If they'll become more similar or still just as divergent. I guess we'll find out how lazy Martin really is. Huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just going to be like spark notes from the from watching the show. <laughs> Which came first. Yeah. Um, but this is a really unique situation, right? How often is the book series still being produced while the TV series gets in the middle of it and just runs away with it? Yeah, it's yeah, kind of crazy. It doesn't really happen, right? Yeah, uh, the, clearly the uh, the people behind the show didn't have much faith in him finishing the series to not like give him that, that chance. Hey, they got deadlines to keep and they can't just sit at home watching football. Yeah, yeah, seriously. They got the rights in 2007, so they had a pretty good idea what Martin's uh, production schedule is. Right, yeah. Definitely didn't light the, the fire under him to, to finish it up before the show. Well, thankfully know, there happened. are, that's only two of the properties that uh, contain the entirety of the universe of Game of Thrones, and we have a couple of other things to talk about when it comes to this series. Specifically, we'll get into the gaming realm of things in just a second. You're listening to Skill and Bones Radio. Damn, son, where'd you find this? 
Okay, so we talked uh, a little bit ago about Telltale Games. When we talked in the episode about The Walking Dead and the Telltale Games version of that, they also have a version of Game of Thrones, and I just finished it up last night, and it's fantastic. I really liked it. And the thing that I think really sets it apart from The Walking Dead is, and why I think that style of game, because they are kind of like alone in the market for this style of adventure game. And, yeah. and they've gotten such praise. I'm really surprised that nobody's come along and really replicated what they've done here. But they've got a really good sort of character-driven story adventure game system that they can plug in all kinds of different settings to and put out games. Yeah. And I think that the Game of Thrones game really fits into this particular model well because the politics side of thing, the, the conversations that really drive the Telltale engine fits in particularly well into the Game of Thrones universe, whereas in the Walking Dead stuff, there's less of a focus on the interpersonal relationships because everything always feels so imperiled, like everybody's going to die at, at any second, you know? Yeah. And the more of the, the intrigue that can happen between betraying people doesn't really play out as much as it does in Game of Thrones. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the decisions you make in the other Telltale games are a little bit like, here's the scenario, like, what's the decision, how do you get out of this? Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes you have a choice between saving two people and you gotta let one person die or whatever. And that happens in this, too. Yeah, but but you know the... Or you can make a good guess on what the outcome of your decisions are going to be in those games. Yeah, usually the alternate scenario is somebody's gonna get eaten by a zombie. Right. But in Game of Thrones, like, you're asked to make decisions well before you see how they're going to unfold. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times it feels like a shot in the dark or, or you're just like, you know, I hope that this plan comes to fruition. Like, if this works out in my favor, it'll be extra good. Yeah. But if it doesn't, it could be extra, extra bad. And, and I don't know. And you're talking about the kind of level of court intrigue. And we're talking in this game specifically, there's a, a character, uh, Mia Forrester, who's the younger daughter of this house that provides ironwood lumber to the realm, Mm -hmm. which is this particularly strong uh, lumber used for shields and uh, arrow shafts, spear shafts, that kind of stuff. And um, Mira Forrester has gone to King's Landing in order to secure funding for her family to continue this uh, logging empire whilst they are in a conflict with another house that wants to take over that business. After the fall of the Starks, right, Um, and once uh, you've got Ramsay Snow running the north. She's the handmaiden of Marjorie. Marjorie Tyrell. Marjorie Tyrell. And she's attempting to support her family in the uh, political machinations that take place in King's Landing and trying to get funding back up to, to keep her family alive. Anyway, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack in doing that. And just this kind of Bannerman House lady, yeah. uh, young lady, trying to navigate the politics of King's Landing is a really complicated system. And what the game does well is it confuses the network of people that are involved in making these decisions to the yeah. point where you are trying to answer to a person who's asked you a direct question or sometimes a really sneaky question, uh, and you're attempting to do so in a way that will will play off of three or four different interpersonal relationships that you have been building over the course of the game, and that is a really hard thing to do when there is a timer on you. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) And so if you've never played a Telltale game, the way that the conversations tend to work is that you'll have an option, three different options. 
of potential things to say. Sometimes two, sometimes three different things to say. Yeah. And then there'll be a little timer that ticks down, and that's a variable timer, too. Sometimes you'll have a long time to make a decision. Yeah. And the conversation will still be rolling out. The person you're talking to will still be giving you information as you're trying to decide which of these three options you want to say back to them. Yeah. A lot of times I like to really wait to the very last second yeah. so I can get as much information yeah, as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and even then, you might have only narrowed it down to two possible choices out of the three, and when you go to hit that final button, you're never quite sure whether you said the right thing, and it could come back to bite you. Yeah. Have you ever, um, I was waiting one time, or maybe it's happened to me a couple times, but like waiting to get more information, and then just didn't respond in time, because <laughs> I was like waffling too yes, much, yes, and then yes, like finally fine. went to reply, and then just didn't. Yeah, yeah, and there's and there's a couple of different ways that can play out. Um, one of them is you say the completely wrong thing, right? Yeah. And it's great, because the facial animations in these games are actually pretty good. I mean, the art is not fantastic, and this particular game has got this really sort of painted style to everything, yeah. which, is, which is beautiful and sort of blurry and washy... In, in stuff, particularly in the background, but the, they do a great job with the facial animations at conveying the proper reactions to what has been said in a right. conversation, you know? And so when you slip out and you say either the right thing or the wrong thing, and the person's reaction is written plainly across their face, yeah. or sometimes up in the text in the in the top corner of the screen, and it says, you know, Cersei Lannister will remember you said that, and you're like, oh crap (laughs) and that can be either a good thing or a bad thing you know you do know if you want her to remember that you just said the right thing or wrong thing the other option is that you can just stay silent there's three potential text responses or you can say nothing and you can either say nothing by letting the clock run out or intentionally hitting that button and just shutting up and in this game more so than the other Telltale games I've played, and I've, I've played a few of them now. Mm-hmm. Staying quiet seems like the right option. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of foot-and-mouth type moments when you're trying to, to navigate the uh, political intrigue there in, in King's Landing, and uh, sometimes just keeping your mouth shut and being a good little handmaiden is the right thing to do. I even had a, had one reaction where I stayed quiet, and somebody said, you are reserved, I think they, yeah. they said I was. You yeah. Know? And, and they looked kindly upon that. And so I kind of won in that, uh, in that situation just by shutting up. Yeah. Yeah. The setting of the Game of Thrones game versus, let's say, the Walking Dead game was felt more part of the Game of Thrones universe than I think that the Walking Dead game felt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there were the events of the books kind of happening in the background. Right, right. And you felt like a minor player in that universe, right? Mm-hmm. When you're playing as Mira Forrester, you, you're playing this handmaiden at the, at the court. When you're playing Roderick, uh, the leader of the house, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the leaders of House Forrester, uh, the yeah. old, older brother uh, of, of House Forrester, you're talking to Ramsay Snow up in the north as you're attempting to negotiate these logging contracts and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and Ramsay Snow, by the way, in this game, is the perfect psychopath. They really nailed the character. Oh, yeah. And I think that the kind of uncanny valley nature of the Telltale animation system, uh, where characters are sometimes a little bit goggle-eyed and uh, <laughs> a, a little bit overly emotive, yeah. really played well in Ramsey's favor because he really did just look like this complete shiny-eyed psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> um, these characters, you see the events of the book sort of play out in the background around you. Big things happen. Prince Joffrey's death is a big event in that in that book, in, yeah. that, in that series. And to you know, to see Tyrion hauled away, to participate, you know, 
although in a small fashion, to participate in the in one of the kind of brother sister conflicts between Tyrion and Cersei felt yeah. really cool. Yeah, and then you've also got the the oldest brother of House Forrester, who's kind of been living in exile over in the Free City. Asher. Asher. He's the second oldest. Roderick is the oldest. Asher's the second born. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. thought Asher was the oldest and he kind of forsake his title. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. He got he got thrown out. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, he's, you know, he's sort of loosely affiliated or comes across uh, Daenerys mm-hmm. uh, taking over, uh, what, Meereen? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Meereen. So, you know, they've, they've got characters that are kind of plugged in all over the, the realm from the books. And so you get to see a little bit of each character, you know. And, yeah. There's a third one, which is this um, squire that goes north to the wall and meets up with Jon Snow and all these other kinds of things. He's a less interesting character, yeah. but you needed to tie in the wall somehow, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, adventures beyond the wall take place and all these other kinds of stuff that's still, I mean, it's pure Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, and he has a little less political maneuvering and a little more, you know, combat-oriented. The combat, actually, let's talk about for a second because it's tough. You know what it reminded me of? It's Dragon's Lair, right? You don't remember Dragon's Lair? No. Okay. Um, Dragon's Lair was an old arcade game from the 80s, right? And it was this, like, really quality uh, Don Bluth animation video game, right? Uh, where you were, oh gosh, I can't even remember the character's name, but you were attempting to save, I think it was Princess Daphne or something like that. And you, you were playing this knight and he would go from uh, room to room where... It, it, this in the arcade fashion, you know, popping quarters into the machine, you would be presented with this high quality animation, and then at the exact right moment, some part of the screen would flash, and you'd have to throw the joystick into that direction in order to duck this, you know, sword swinging at you or dive into that uh, through that door in order to avoid some sort of peril, right? Right. And if you did not succeed at making this precise timing, you would die, right? right? And the death animations in the video game were, were like, the best thing about it, right? To, yeah. to, to how he got ripped apart this time. This was, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't, like, a super graphic kind of thing, but it was, you know, he, he died by getting eat, eaten by this plant or whatever it was, right? Sure. And so this pedigree of, like, you know, precise timing, mm-hmm. you get one chance at this, kind of combat is, I think, where the Telltale games draws their uh, combat from. So something will happen on screen, some guy with a sword will advance towards you, and you need to very quickly, you know, push down on your controller or something like right. that, or hit X or square or, you know, whatever buttons your particular game system has. Right. Or, or you need to, you know, aim the the reticle really quickly at whatever character's coming at you and hit your shoulder, the shoulder button, you know, right. in order to... And sometimes you'll have a choice of two or three different places to hit a guy, you know. But the point is, is that you're under a time pressure, just like you're under with the conversations right. in the political part of it. And if you don't succeed at combat, it's not necessarily the death of your character. It could have lasting impact on your character. You might get wounded in a way that would affect you way later in the game. Right. And you have no recourse for going back and fixing that. Right. right? So you could you could screw up a sudden button press that you weren't expecting, you know, mm-hmm. and then be three hours of gameplay later that the effect finally unfolds on you. Right, yeah, I think that's one of the big differences between between the Game of Thrones Telltale game and, and again Walking Dead is that in Walking Dead, if you if you messed something up, you usually just got eaten by a zombie and you got to start that sequence right. over again right. until you got it right. Right. Uh, that happens too in Game of Thrones. There are a couple sure. scenes where you get straight up murdered. Yeah, that's true. But there's the the moments where there's just a penalty 
you know, an injury that, that you suffer um, that'll slow you down or whatever for later on. It wasn't something that they really explored a lot in the other Telltale yeah, games. Yeah, and that I, I think played. that there's something about the penchant for, like, killing off main characters in Game of Thrones that allows you to screw up combat, get somebody killed, and then somebody else picks up the story, yeah. right? You know, and so so you could lose something and have that be, you know, a major part of the, the story. Right. And that that is really tense combat in a way that I think that I was not expecting out of this video game. Right, it, right. Combat felt really tense, really dire. And honestly, a couple of times that I took a hit... Uh, from somebody because I because I didn't hit something fast enough, I wanted to die so I could try again. Oh, you yeah. know, but I didn't get that opportunity, and I was damn it. <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, there's times where I've either accidentally hit the wrong button and said the wrong thing, or or messed up. I was like, no, I need to nail this combat perfectly, or whatever. Where I've actually like just quit back to menu and, and then you gone did. back in oh. and, and you know lost like 10, 20 minutes of the game. I never did just because I couldn't take the consequences of that. Oh wow, cheater! Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. I never did that. Although I gotta say, I this game more than any of the other ones in the Telltale series has inspired me to want to go back and play it again. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I want to see what those other paths are, and we've. We don't want to spoil too much in there, and so we've uh, already had part of this conversation offline here. And there are things, there are bit, pretty big differences that have happened. There are different branching paths. Kind of at points of it, I kind of wondered how railroaded through the story I was. But from the sounds of things, there are some big differences that can happen depending on your performance. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's a good one. Were there any parts of that, any characters that really stood out for you as being? above and beyond the rest of them in the in that game? Um, I think the most compelling one for me was Mira Forrester. You think um, the court intrigue of the handmaiden? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I didn't think I would be so so interested in playing the handmaiden. In the right, court. but every time I went back to her, I was definitely excited about it. And I think part of it is that looking back, I feel like that's one where I can I could have really changed that the path mm-hmm. um, that I took. I know there's a couple of key decisions that I made that I wish I had made differently. Yeah. And part of the problem with, with that character for me was that I played the game as they released the chapter, so they were like a month or more apart. Right. And so I legitimately couldn't remember what I had decided to do or who I was going to help with right, yeah. and keep all those keep all those things straight. So I was like just kind of doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and I felt like it really hurt me in the well, end. Well, I got to say, I binged on it and went straight through the entire series, and I also could not keep track of all the decisions that I had to make and all yeah. the different people that I might have pissed off in one way or another, and uh, and it still felt very perilous. <laughs> like it came back to haunt me. I, yeah, I, I felt a lot more pressure. Uh, with her than I did for for most anybody else because everybody else seemed like they had there was an optimal path and and you could see what that path would be based on the decisions that you were making I felt like playing Roderick that the house of Lord Forrester who's currently you know like under siege and his and his house is um uh it has an encampment of soldiers in it from the opposing family and so trying to deal with uh, the pressure of his position. Yeah, I felt like he was also kind of on thin ice in all kinds of different oh, places. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, you and I came across a couple different places that affected the storyline for him. Yeah, I won't go into. I I felt like there were different ways you could have played him out. And I think that there is something to the uh, facial animation system. Uh, where they kind of keep track of how harsh you are making these characters, how friendly or how harsh. Yeah. And it kind of changes their overall demeanor when they walk into the room, whether they've got like a, a firmly set jaw yeah. and like are frowning or glaring or that, or that kind of thing, or whether they're a little more doe-eyed and, and innocent looking. And I think that that really builds up over time. 
uh, and your characters generally look different towards the end of the game than they than they start. Besides all the flesh wounds and all that kind of stuff that that play out over the course of things, but this game really does like to kill characters in the same way that George R. R. Martin does. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and so um, it's a perilous game, and, and it's a good side story to the main story of Game of Thrones. Without you know getting too deep into the events that happen, those it just feels like the Game of Thrones universe is taking place around you, and you are taking over for one of the lords of one of the smaller houses and and fighting their battles for them. Well, a lot of the uh, characters are kind of analogous to the Starks of Winterfell. I mean, it's a northern family. And most of the children in that have somebody they can re- relate to. Sure. You know, Roderick is kind of your Rob Stark type of a yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you've got Mira down in King's Landing is kind of like your, your Sansa. Sansa yeah. You know, you've got the squire that goes up to the wall with Jon Snow and so on like that. You've got Rickon and you've got uh, Bran. I yeah. Mean, those, those, uh, there, there's nobody for Asher. There's no, you know, Stark abroad, is there, that no, he really fits not, into? Not, not really, but, I, I but anyway, there, there's... Analogs, and I, I felt like that was one thing that I liked about it was that it sort of lets you experience what the star, what could have been for the Starks without actually yeah. affecting the storyline in a yeah. Con- considering how how uh, things have ended up for them so far in the in the books and the show <laughs> and everything like that, it was nice to be able to. It's like, oh, this is you know, if they didn't all immediately die, this would be the kind of lives they'd be living. I thought the stuff <laughs> in Marine was interesting. I thought that the that the dealing with Daenerys was interesting and I thought that the interactions with her were particularly tense because she felt like she had all the power. Oh yeah. I mean, you like you feel like an underdog in pretty much all of the situations that you're thrown into in this game. Yeah. And meeting when you when you finally get the opportunity to meet Daenerys Targaryen, she really fills the room, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like you, you really feel like you got to scrape and bow a bit and trying to, trying to stand up to her or you're not going to get the help that you need or, or any of that. It's right. all about bringing home the resources in order to, to, to help your family uh, win over just their little regional battle in the North. And yet they take that struggle and they make it global to the entirety of Westeros and to uh, Essos as well. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. So, recommended? Yeah, it's definitely my favorite Telltale game. It's a good one. Yeah. More in a bit. Everything's great! Winter is coming. So hang on inside! Oh, bring down, Rob. Look on the bright side! Let me hear my stock so we do it all right! Rob is dead, we're homeless, and I'm crippled for life. I'm hungry! I'm alone in the middle of a war. Yeah! I love the cable, but I married the troll. Oh, see, that's what I'm talking about. We're having a ball! I'm gonna breastfeed Rob until my breast fall. Yeah! One thing that we need to get to is I do actually have a quiz game for us this week. <laughs> and so we're going to put you guys to the test. We don't have a great track record for these, Lauren, but I'm willing to get I back on the horse. Yeah, <laughs> you usually want the crap out of me, but I love But, guys. like, one answer. Maybe but one, maybe two, somewhere. You know, yeah. when there's only three, that's a lot. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. You beat me by a third. Wow, that's a bit. And so, I've put in front of you uh, <laughs> buttons that uh, you're going to press when it comes time to answer the question. The game today is called Fray or Pie. Fray or Pie? Fray or Pie. Okay. I've got a list of names to read to you guys. Okay that are either a member of the Walder Frey family, a descendant of Walder Frey, or a tasty type of pie. And it's going to be up to you to determine which one these are. 
right. so you have a button in front of you. <coughs> Lauren, when you want to ring in, your sounds like this. Hold on. Hold on. Thank you. Kevin, when you want to ring in, it sounds like this. Hold on. <laughs> Are you ready to play? Hold on, plummeting down a well or something. That's basically what that was. <laughs> Are you ready to play Fray or Pie? Hold on. Okay. <laughs> Number one. Hogan. Lauren? Frey. Hogan is a pie. A British pork pie. Number two. Della. That's a Frey. That is a Frey. Granddaughter of Walder. Yeah. Next one. Homedy. Pie. That is a pie. British vegetable pie. Number four. You're using non non-traditional pies, and I find that offensive. <laughs> well, you're not gonna come across like a strawberry rhubarb strawberry rhubarb fray. I don't have any excuses. <laughs> Next one. Hot. Hold on. This is a trick question. Wasn't hot pie Arya's friend? Fray or pie? Uh well, a kind of pie then. He was a fray. Named Hot Pie. No. Well, that's a trick question. See? He was See? a kind of pie, though. House, house Frey, though. Was he House Frey? Yeah. Non-traditional. Ah, as it turns out. Uh, next one up. Para. Graph. <laughs> Frey or Pie? Frey. That is a Frey. Great, great granddaughter of Walder. <laughs> next. Zia. Pie. Frey. Oh. Great granddaughter of Walder. Next. Walton. Hold on. Frey. Pie. English pie with a potato crust. Oh, that sounds like it was this... named after a lord. <laughs> Doesn't it, though? Yes. Next up, Colmar. Hold on. Pie. Son of Walder. Did you know that? No. <laughs> I swear there's a Walton Frey. Next up, Britty. Lauren? Pasty pie. Scottish minced meat pie. Damn. I think we're tied. I think you're tied. What? Just give me my time. Number one while. Ten. <laughs> Number ten. Burrick. Lauren. Gosh, I want to say Frey, but I'm gonna think I'm gonna regret it, but I'm going with Frey. A Mediterranean cheese and meat pie. Told you. Told you. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, ready? Next one. Number eleven. Walton. Hold on. Kevin. Frey, grandson of Walder. Next, Bradamar. Hold on. Kevin. Frey. Grandson of Walder. Next. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's gone. That's over now. Arwood. My oh, butt doesn't work. <laughs> Tasty pie. Grandson of Walder. Ah. <laughs> Pirog. Oh, that's a pie. Hold on. Kevin. Pie. Russian fruit pie. Now we go with the non-tradition. Now that one. <laughs> Next up, just a few more to go. Zelnik. Zelnik's a stumble. <clears throat> Zelnik, I think the root is in the Zel for. That's comes from um, the Roman word Zelnaga, which is a type of leather. I don't know. It's a tasty pie. Eastern European pie with a crust. <laughs> <laughs> With a funky my, crust. My spelling me background. Help me out there. Flaky crust. Oh. Uh, Fatire. Lauren? Tasty pie. 
Middle Eastern meat pie. Ah! And we're tied up again. Oh my goodness, it's coming down to the final four. Clark. Kent. Hold on! Pie. Welsh meat pie with a thick crust. Kevin up by one. I'm impressed. Lythine. Hold on! Sounds like a bad chemical you wouldn't want to drink. Lysine. 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 Frey or pie? Frey. Daughter of Walder. Yes! Tie game. Next up, Waylon. Hold Jennings. on! Kevin. Frey. Son of Walder. Final, Emberlay. For the tie. Hold on! Kevin. For the win. Frey. Granddaughter of Walder. I yeah. you punk! Well, well done, done Kevin. Well done. Well done. I pronounced to Kate you winner of Frey or Pie. <laughs> Man, that's like everyone in a row. I gotta, I gotta win some trivia. You gotta, you gotta study <laughs> up. We will be right back with some games. We're gonna talk about games. Let's talk about the board. <laughs> let's talk about the game and throw the board game. We are the Lord. Hold on. Hold on. No more hodering. No. Yeah, uh, it's got. It's been like uh, over a month now at this point. But yep. since it was your birthday, happy birthday! Oh, oh thank birthday you. Birthday to you. And uh, way too late to sing. Yeah, for your birthday, we got together and we played a six-player game of the Game of Thrones board game by Fantasy Flight Games. That's right. Yes, we played the Dance of Dragons expansion, uh, which is an alternate twist on it. Well, before we get into what, what twists we got into, right, right. what is this game that we played that you have played a ton of and Lauren and I have played uh, a few of? So Game of Thrones is a, a board game by uh, Fantasy Flight Games. It's a strategy game, map-based, t- land grab. Conquest. Yeah. But. So for this board game, everybody takes the role of one of the larger houses yep. and competes for control of different keeps and castles uh, across Westeros, just Westeros. Essos doesn't play into it. Right. And whoever gets to seven castles or keeps wins the game. Yes. And, and one important uh, point there is that it's immediately after you get that seventh castle. Yeah, you don't the play at the end of the turn or anything like right. that. Right. And I lost mm. a game recently where I ended up being in the best position I had um, we'll get to these a little bit more but I had the Iron Throne I had the Valerian Steel and I had the Messenger Raven and I was set up for success and all I needed was the rest of that turn and um, I probably could have knocked the Lannisters out of the game almost entirely and also uh, launched an invasion into the into the Martells territory but the Martells grabbed that 7th castle early on enough in a, in just, a game and the game was just over the thing that I really like about it coming from a tabletop background is that there's almost no randomness to the game. Everything is has has values and it's strictly just a numbers game. Like the combat, everything like a you have your basic footman is worth one, your your knights are your elite troops and they have two and you basically you just total up the the total combat values between the two forces that are clashing. And then each player adds in a house card, which is one of the famous characters from the books or the show. And, uh, you know, they contribute an additional combat value. Highest player wins. 
I'm so, not sure if that's true, because then I would have won. <laughs> yes. If you were what? If it was the highest player wins, I would have won. <laughs> the combat specifically. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, combat. the highest so value sorry. cards, yeah. combination uh, of troop strength, not just... Yeah. 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 Totally out of context. Right, My exactly. apologies. No, no, yeah. That's totally understood. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of that's the main thing for me is that it's it's just purely numbers and, and who can do the math the best and and set the numbers uh, in their favor. So the only real like random element is the Westeros cards, which are kind of the things that influence the game board, the game state. But they can they can affect they affect everybody equally, or they can. But that comes down to you playing correctly or not. You know what how how harshly they affect you. Sure. Um, and then there's the wildling cards. Occasionally the wildlings attack and they do random things and you know nobody knows what's coming up in the wildling even if even if you say random but i mean you know that deck after a little while and there are a limited number of things that could happen in those and so uh, different sorts of things that can happen in the westeros cards are that the supply will come Mm -hmm. up and you'll get more supplies or you'll change where you are on the supply track or uh what is it to to muster troops yeah uh will come up and you'll get more pieces on the board i mean there's a there's a, a a known number of those cards in the deck and so you're the chances of getting one of those things increases as the pool of cards diminishes. Right, so right, yeah. You, you can, can definitely of, count cards yeah, as far as Yeah, you can kind of figure where the game might go, but you don't play through enough turns that you'll actually get through that deck entirely. Yeah. yeah. And so and so there, that is still a random Well, deck. and then there's also cards that come up in those decks that have you uh, mix that card back in and then shuffle the whole deck right, and starts the yeah, whole thing over. Yeah. That was very frequent, actually. I think almost every time we were shuffling that deck. Yeah, but that, I mean, it comes, there's only like, you know, two of those in there but they just happen to keep coming up because yeah. they get shuffled back in as well so yeah. every game ends up being different uh, as far as that goes quick question for you. you mentioned the iron throne the messenger raven and the valerian sword yeah our listeners might not know what those things right are. right yeah i was uh so before we get to those I mean, the game is basically played with uh, you have order tokens that are basically how you interact with the board and you have a limited number of them there's no more than three of each order and each house isn't even necessarily able to play all three of each order. Your your most valuable order is the march order. That's how you move units. That's how you initiate combat. Mm-hmm. And there's you know a march minus one, a march zero, and a march plus one. Talking about the overall strength of your forces in combination with the cards to get the highest player, right. the highest number that you were talking so about. So if you initiate combat with a march minus one, you're hurting yourself there. So usually the march minus one order is going to be used for backfield maneuvers and repositioning units that uh, aren't likely to be in combat. Hoping that somebody doesn't sneak an army in front of you and you accidentally run into them with... Although, I guess you don't have to choose to go where you say you're going to go when you play a march order, do you? Well, you don't You don't choose where you're going to go until you until you play that march order, but you can always choose to just not resolve it. Okay. If yeah. there's no good place to move, then you can just pull the token up and just say, I, you know, just do a marriage. You, if you say you're going to march, you don't necessarily have to march. Right, right. Okay. All right. So there's your march. Then you've got uh, support and defense. Uh, defense is basically if you think you're going to be attacked, it adds plus one or plus two combat. Right. And then you've got your support order, which is the same thing. It's that it, it's a static combat modifier, and it allows that territory or the units in that territory to support any combats that happen adjacent to them. Now, the interesting thing that for about the support to me is that it's dependent on the number of units that are in that space, right? So if you've got more troops in a space that's offering support, you're offering more value in support than just one. Plot. Yeah, yeah. Often new players will start off with marching like a large army and having a small army supporting it. Uh-huh. But usually the better way to go is to actually march the one guy into a territory and have a large support. 
Because if you lose that combat, you risk the one guy. Uh, you don't risk the three guys sitting in the adjacent territory that are lending the support. But also, tactically, that big army can then only attack one place, where if you have it back in support, you can use that, that strength exactly. in multiple areas. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So, uh, support is a, support's a pretty big game changer as far as that goes. Uh, then you've got your consolidate power, which is basically generating the wealth, the influence for that game. It's kind of your your economy-based order. I found myself pretty economy short when we played, and I think that was... Well, I mean, I know that was of my own doing. And, yeah. And that's... Uh, it, it's a hard ditch to dig out of. Yeah. Yeah. And, th- and those t- orders are something you want to play only when it, you know for sure that it's safe. Mm-hmm. Because if you play a consolidate power and then somebody takes that territory from you, you lose the power to... the Because those aren't resolved until after all the march orders are resolved. So you could lose the the power token you were going to gain from there, and you could have played a defense token. And possibly one, or kept that territory. Yeah, and then the last order is the raid order, and that allows you to remove other orders. And it's especially bad if you get your if you let your consolidate power get raided, because mm-hmm. to resolve a raid order, you pick up an order token from an adjacent enemy territory. Right. If you raid a consolidate power, not only do they lose that order and the ability to generate wealth themselves, but you also gain one for raiding their consolidate power. And on top of that, they lose one out of their pool of consolidate power that they've already got. So it actually ends up being a difference of three between where you started and where they ended up. We should say that for people who haven't played this game or looked at this game, that all of these actions that you're taking are played face down on the table. And so so as people are placing what their potential orders are around the table, they may have a defense in there, they may have a march order in there, they may have consolidated power, but you don't know until everybody flips it all over. So if you're trying to raid somebody, you might end up raiding a march and you can't do that. It doesn't do you any good. Yeah, there's definitely a big element of analysis paralysis there where a little bit of rock paper scissors as to whether this thing can affect that thing and then the other right it's like if i'm going to march there if they think i'm going to march they'll want to play a defend here because they can't afford to lose this territory and i can't take it if they play a defend just the numbers being what they are so if i think they're going to play a defend then i'll just do something different like uh consolidate power because i know they're not attacking me if they're defending right but then, so your show, of, your show of strength on their border could be a good good opportunity to consolidate power because they because they're not going to be coming after you. But then on the other hand, they might reason that you know if there's say if there's two territories, they want to they're going to put a raid token down because they can't risk the support. But then you've got that consolidated power. So not only you didn't attack them. Because <laughs> I know that you know that yeah. I know that you know that you're going to raid this turn. Yeah. And so that's uh, it, you, that game can really bog down if you allow yourselves too much time and too much second guessing. Like sure. You really kind of have to push through that planning phase. Right. I felt that the reveal orders was the, the tactics portion of that game. Like this is where your tactics come out. You yeah. set up your, your, your tactical battle plan. The, the enemy reveals and then you make tactical decisions. Based off which order you reveal your stuff in, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, although they do take place in a certain order that all raids have to happen first, correct? Yeah, there's a sequence: raids Mm -hmm. happen first, then march orders happen. Defend and and support are both static things, so they're never actually resolved. They're just on there until they're until all combats are resolved, and they're no longer relevant. And then consolidate power is resolved last. Right, because you got to still be there in order to actually do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so going through the list again, you've got March, mm-hmm. you've got Defense, mm-hmm. you've got Consolidate Power, mm-hmm. you've got Raid, mm-hmm. and you've got Support. Yes. And so that's just five choices. That's not a whole lot of things to have to keep up in your keeping your head. However, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this game has got a 
just a deep well of complexity underlying that. Yeah. So so one of the so going from the order tokens and and how you can use them and the order in which they're they're used is where the influence tracks come in. Yeah. And there's three influence tracks. Uh, the first is the holder of the Iron Throne. Mm-hmm. So whoever's highest on this track is the is the king of Westeros, or right. at least holds the power of Westeros. You know, even if they're like Cersei Lannister is kind of a proxy ruler. The political power. Yeah, exactly. So the order of that track determines player order. Yeah. So whoever goes, whoever's highest on there goes first, which is great that they have the ability to, to move first. Like I would a lot of times hit people in one turn and then the next turn I know they're going to hit me back because I overextended myself. And so I'll just bail out of there before they have a chance to hit sure. me. Sure. On the other hand, there is certainly value in moving second and allowing people to overextend themselves so they've gotten away from that support or whatever because they marched out, and now you can hit them back. Uh. So it's not always best to be at the top of the Iron Throne track when it comes to determining order. Sometimes there's reactionary power as well. It's a nice little abstract way of looking at which houses have power over over time yeah. and the shifting of the houses having power. Right. I found it very advantageous. Yeah, it's it's definitely good in a lot of situations, but there is, if you are lower on that track, you just have to approach the game differently and just realize that things are going to change on the game board before I have a chance to move. So I need to set up my maneuvers or my, my orders in such a way that I can respond to what I think is likely to happen. Now, where is the currency that gets you higher on the track? So that's that's where the power tokens come in and the consolidate power order. You know, everybody starts off with five of these power tokens, and you can accumulate more of them, sometimes through the Westeros cards or playing those Consolidate Power Mm -hmm. orders, and you get a bigger and bigger pool. And then there's other Westeros cards that call for voting or bidding on all of the influence tracks. Right, and so every once in a while, by random draw of the Westeros cards, you will have an auction or bid. bid come up that gets you to change places on the... What are the, what are the just, tracks? It, it completely influence tracks. Yeah, it completely rearranges the order of the influence tracks. Okay. Uh, I looked at the rearranging of the influence tracks as like a major event in the books, like the Red Wedding or uh, the King Dying or something. Yeah. That's, that's what it seemed like to me. What are yeah. the cards called that call those events? Uh, the, what are the Westeros cards uh, called? Well, there's the Clash of Kings Clash card of Kings. Okay. Uh, is the one that forces it to happen. Uh-huh. And then there's other ones where each of the influence tracks has a card specific to the holder of that token. Oh. So the Iron Throne holder can call for the bid on the tracks. Okay. Generally, that doesn't I didn't know I could do that. Well, no, if that Westeros card comes up, oh, it says the holder of whatever token gets to choose okay. one of three effects, and on one or two of them, I can't remember exactly, there's an opportunity to bid. Usually, people don't go for it because they already hold the uh, one of those, so it's like, do I really want to put that at risk? Well, but this is where it comes into to play to mention the secondary effect of being higher on the track or having the Iron Throne, which is yeah. that then you get to determine who wins in ties. Right. So uh, any uh, so uh, any of these uh, bids, uh. if people if two people bid three for whatever track, the holder of the Iron Throne decides who bids the most. Right. And that's the value of you bid through all these things in order. So you start with the Iron Throne. So in some ways, the Iron Throne actually can be mo- the most influential for the other two bids. And that's a play that I make a lot of times is even though I don't care so much about the Iron Throne, I'll spend more than anybody else will just to get it. And that way I can spend a little bit less on the other two and still put myself a little higher on those positions. Oh, because you get to determine that you win in a tie. Yeah. So a lot of times three people will bid two and I just happen to be the highest bidder of those three people. But you got the throne, baby. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So it ends up being a little bit more efficient way to to bid on those tracks, starting with the Iron Throne. That's cool. So after the Iron Throne is the Valerian Steel, and that's the most straightforward combat-based one. So the player order on on the Valerian Steel track, the fiefdom track, 
is uh, is how you determine ties in combat. If we both have combat six after we add in our house cards and our support our, and our defense yeah. and all that stuff, after everything's totaled, then the whoever's higher on the track uh, wins that tie. The person at the top of that track has the Valerian Steel, and once per turn they can add a plus one combat result. On t- and then, of course, they're also the top of the track, so they'll win the tie. So if they're down by one, they can play the sword to mm-hmm. tie you and then beat you because they're higher on the track. I, I want to just really quickly point out, I don't want I don't want to underscore how important it is to win combats and to yeah. win win things because the 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 balance of the game and the and the future path of that game can be so importantly tied into using every last little plus one that you can get out of a single combat. When we started in this game uh, for your birthday there, I got into a combat with the Lannisters and I had the Valerian Steel. I used it in order to get the plus one and I couldn't quite get up to the point of being able to break the tie, right? Oh, okay. And now what we realized afterwards is that I hadn't counted a support unit that was out in the bay. That would have gotten us to a tie. I would have used the Valerian Steel to win that tie and the entire balance of that game going forward would have shifted because I I would have beaten the yeah, uh, I would have beaten the Lannisters out of River Run, and they wouldn't have been able to come back on right, like that. Right, And so, without having done that, I was left crippled for the entirety of the rest of the two, three hours that we played this board game. Yeah, and so being able to to notice, or, you know, taking notice of every single little offensive and defensive asset that you have at your disposal is hugely important because player elimination in this game is real. It's real, but it's also really hard to achieve. Like it's it's easy to cripple their military but it's hard to knock like you didn't get knocked entirely out of the game no and it did leave me around to be to play the role of the kingmaker but i i I got ahead of ourselves and we should get back to what that third track is yeah uh before we go too far Um, forward so as far as my the way i play the game i don't value the uh fiefdoms track too heavily to be honest um just because combat is a known quantity and you can plan according to your your place on there. It's really hard to hide that giant cardboard sword chit that sits in front of you. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. people um, know if they're fighting somebody with the. But if you have it, there's a there's a defensive value in it too, in that people are less likely to attack you unless they know for sure that they can stack that combat and win it. But that means that they usually have to play a powerful house card when they'd want to play like a mediocre one, or they have to throw their whole army at you when they'd rather only just throw a single knight at you or something like that. Like, they know that if they want to beat you, they have to really overdo it. And right. it's not a very efficient way of attack. Well, there's something is said to be said for setting up a one-two punch kind of thing where you try and draw out the Valerian Steel to be used for the first one and then hit them with the real force yeah. coming in behind. Exactly. But, I mean, that's difficult to set up and, yeah. you know, bait people into. And you see the tokens thing. out there. You kind of know if it's coming, you know. Yeah. But you can put them in a position where they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they yeah, don't. Sure. If they, either they don't use the Steel when you win that combat or they do use the steel, and now you can now you're free to hit them somewhere else. Yeah, you two are focusing on just the aspect of just the two of you battling out. Yeah, but when you got four other hungry wolves at the door, whew, that makes a very complex. Uh, yeah, combat, actually. yeah, yeah. That's true. Like especially if you're getting attacked, or looks like you could be attacked by several different houses. Which one do you want to use that steel against? Yeah. And there is the uh, option for getting support from the people around you as well. Which requires a little bit of negotiation on your part, and there yeah. is there is kind of the metagaming political side of things where you're trying to talk people into either attacking you, not attacking you, supporting you, not supporting the other guy. Yeah, you know all yeah. kinds of all kinds of little factors of of uh, making friends and enemies. I think that everybody's self-serving enough, mostly when I play it, that there's generally not a lot of support lended 
to other players. It does it does happen if a if a threatening player to them is in a situation that they can influence, then mm-hmm. it can certainly happen. But a lot of times people seem to like just kind of wash their hands of it and like I don't wanna declare in favor of one house or another. So I'll just I'm just gonna sit here with my support token and I'm not gonna help anybody. Well let's get back to that in just a second. Let's go to the third part of the track, the Raven. So the Raven is, in my opinion, in most people's opinion, the most powerful influence track. Because the just because of the flexibility of it, the order on that track determines how many of each of your orders you can use. So that you every house has three march orders, three support orders, three defense orders. Right. One of each of those orders is called a special order token that has a little star on there. You can only use the star, the special order tokens, if you are high enough on the King's Court uh, influence track. So the person that holds the Raven has three star tokens that they can use. Meaning you can use every single token at your disposal, practically. Practically. I mean, you can only use three of your five special order tokens, so you do have a decision to make. Yeah, I guess so. The second place person also can use three. The third place person can use two. The fourth place person can use one. And the last two people can't use any. That would be me. So yeah, I think I was la- you and me were talking. Yeah, we were we were down there at the bottom, and I found myself really restricted at the number of things that I could use because I, I just I just ran out of you know march tokens that I yeah. could use. You and got so two march. I could not march as much. I could uh, so instead I have to try and do support. I was just not very mobile, and I, yeah. I couldn't uh, play the way I wanted to play. Well, once the other, you get down there, you it, really get continue to get well, kicked in the gut. And by far the biggest impact that has is uh, the consolidate power special order token. Okay, because that's your the out of the west. Rose cards that's the only other way to get additional troops uh, so if you want you if you play the special consolidate power order token in a castle or stronghold it allows you to recruit new troops muster troops from that territory so the houses that are at the bottom like the Greyjoys, don't have that option they're not going to get a new army they've got what they've got until westeros decides that you get more troops we did not muster a ton right which means <laughs> that a lot of times they have to really bludgeon somebody early uh, and try to, especially try to reduce their armies. You know, are since they're able to potentially build back up, you can't you can't let them outstrip you too much. You can't muster troops off. on a boat. Yeah, yeah. So then the the other thing that the the holder of the raven gets to do, in addition to being able to play more special order tokens, is that they get one of two choices after all the tokens are flipped up. They can either swap one of their tokens anywhere on the board for Ugh, one so that they good. still have in their pool. So good. And if they don't do that, they can check the top wildling card and either place it at the top or the bottom. I really like the fact that they gave you so many options for that thing. And I can understand why you, why it's the most powerful right. uh, thing is because they gave you so many options, as opposed to the sword where you really don't have anything. And they, the one that just determines, or the Iron Throne just determining turn order and tiebreaker. Yeah. Giving a lot of choices makes you feel empowered. Yeah. Even, even if just checking the top wildling card doesn't really get you a whole lot, you know. It doesn't get you a whole lot, but the lack, the fact that you can put it on the top or on the bottom oh, right. means that you if it's something that could be potentially really detrimental for you, then you throw it on the bottom. But there is a wildling card that there, no matter what the result of it is, nothing actually happens. I guess we should explain a little bit about the wildling mechanic. I really appreciate the fact that you, what you what you described is, uh, is what I call utility. Yeah. To be able to do a lot of things. Yeah, sure. Power, utility should be powerful, I feel, in my yeah. Knowing what the top wild what that wildling card is, because of the bidding process, next time the bidding comes up, you don't have to hold anything back for wildling. You already know what it is. Yeah. Right, right. You know you, what you're saying about potentially doing nothing is that a lot of people could get bribed or, or could get uh, frightened into trying to deal with the wildling threat, and you know, unlike anybody else, that there's no real threat there. Yeah. 
Yeah. I never bothered trying to deal with wildlings. <laughs> I just put that all on you guys. I didn't really have the influence to do it that, that much. So, so the the wildlings attack with a increasing strength. You know, they attack when they reach either combat strength 12 or there's a Westeros card that caused the wildlings to attack yeah. at whatever their current strength is. And when, when that happens, before you look at the card and figure out what the wildlings are going to do... We should mention quick, this is at the end of the turn after all the other actions have taken place after you've gathered your influence back up and... Yeah, uh, actually, technically it's at the beginning of the of the following turn. Oh, yeah, I suppose. But, but it's it just, doesn't happen at the beginning, so yeah. it's at the end. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so they attack with whatever combat value between 2 and 12, and everybody has to um, do another bid, another secret bid. Their goal is to equal or exceed the wildling's current strength. So everybody puts in their, their hands, opens their hands, and sees how many power tokens are in their palm. If it equals the, the wildling's strength, they're defeated, and the highest bidder gets some benefit. So this is, again, where the Iron Throne is powerful because if there's multiple people that bid the same amount, they get to decide who the highest. Oh, uh, yeah. If, if, the, if the collective power tokens don't equal the, the Wildling's strength, then we lose. Bad things happen. And the worst thing happens to the lowest bidder. Iron Throne chooses if there's a tie. Uh-huh. Um, so a lot of times when I have the Iron Throne, I'll bid nothing. Knowing that I might get hurt a little bit, but, but I'm not, not going to get the last. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to be the last unless I'm unless I'm the only person bidding zero. In which case, I'm yeah. stuck with the last. But yeah, you're never the only person yeah. bidding zero. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then uh, so every, so the the person who bids the least gets hurt the most, and then everybody else gets hurt a little. But there is a couple wildling cards that's all quiet, you know, and nothing happens, and so people end up spending huge amounts of tokens. Trying to trying to defeat the wildlings when there's no point to it, and the holder of the raven might know that and yeah. know not to bid anything. Yeah, and they've got more tokens for the next time yeah. tokens are are used. That's uh, th- this is a, a game. There's a, there's a few of them out there that use this mechanic of just the secret bidding thing, where everybody's drop holding their hands out over the table at the same time and dropping tokens on the table to see, you know, who uh, who's bidding the most. And it's a fun mechanic. I always enjoyed that sort of yeah. thing, the secret bid stuff. And, and you know, the game can change wildly from turn to turn with with those things rearranged. You got a bit efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, and people might have a game plan in mind with the current arrangement of who's got what. But all of a sudden, you can lose that sword in that position that you were like, oh, I, I know I can beat them. Right. They can't possibly equal yeah. my combat strength, and yeah. now somebody else has the sword. So how does one recover from losing the sword? What does one do to... Well, one gets onto their boats and pisses off into the ocean. <laughs> Hangs out at the yeah. arbor. I think, yeah. you my, if my experience with the losing the sword is any kind of, uh, any kind of example. Yeah. So, I mean, generally, you just... Set up a taxi ferry service. You, you just have to figure out how to stack the numbers in your favor. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have the sword, then you just have to go to plan B of, well, maybe I'm in a position now where I can hit them first when I, you know, when I was lower on that track before. So it can change everything. The game plays very differently depending on whether how many players you've got. Yeah. The three-player game that we played was interesting but completely different than the six-player game and requires that you just cut out a large section of the map and right. you cannot play on that section of the map. Those are those are not part of the three-player game. It all takes place farther up in the north. Yeah, what up? So it's not like Zombicide where you have to play all six players. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, yeah. yeah, it scales. It has pre-selected. You know, if, it, if you're playing a three-player game, it's House Baratheon, House Stark, and House Lannister. Yeah, yeah. Four-player. Well, tell you what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Four player adds Greyjoys, five player adds Tyrells, and six player adds Martells. Gotcha, thank you. And four players, um, my understanding was, we, I mean, you've got a deck of cards that makes for a four player game, but out of, out of the box, four players, it sounds like it doesn't really work all that well. Yeah, it's it's widely considered to be pretty much unplayable. 
because you've got the the Starks, the Greyjoys, and the Lannisters all pretty much right on top of each other, mm-hmm. and then the Baratheons are a little ways away. The Starks are adjacent to the Baratheons, but they have a hard time really reaching too far out of the north. Um, yeah, I haven't played enough of it to really um, to, to really make this kind of an accusation, but more of a suspicion, I suppose, which is that there, there really seems like there's an awful lot of ideal scenarios in this game. The four-player game is out, you know, that, and that one house or another has got a real hard time taking out a particular spot on the board, or that, the, that some house cards are obviously superior to others and some lack any kind of conditional use, you know, that, yeah. that you can look at the deck of cards at a particular house and go, yeah, you know what, this set of cards is just fundamentally better than this set of cards. Yeah, yeah, there is a bit of that. Um, and that's one of the things with the six-player game is that the Martells have generally the best house cards overall. The Greyjoys have really? a really good set, and the Martells have a really good set. It's, I didn't know that. Yeah, the Martells, um, one of their big ones, uh, they've got two cards that are that are huge. One knocks an opponent to the bottom of one of the three influence Holy tracks. crap! So if you if you if you have if you're at the top of any of those, don't go to war with the Martells. Well, we're talking about the core game set of cards, and yeah. what we played on oh, Kevin's birthday was the Dance of Dragons expansion. Okay, so we have yeah. a different set of cards. So in the regular six player game, the Martells have a really good set of house cards. They've got that, and they've also got one that uh, directly counters the power card for the Tyrells. Uh, Loras Tyrell's ability is when you march into a territory and win, you can move your march order into the territory you just took and therefore march again. Something I noticed about that the house cards, it, it dictates how you should play almost. Yeah. Like all my house cards as in the Dance of Dragons expansion, the Martell house cards had a very obvious theme. Yeah. It was about having your characters out. You don't want to have a lot in your hands. Save yeah. these two for your big bombs. Win. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And there's and there's some obvious combinations that are set up where you're mm-hmm. where you're supposed to play these cards in order. And then you have to as you're trying to set up that trick, that one two punch of of uh what was it? Uh, Ramsey Snow and uh Ramsey and Reek. And Reek, yeah. yeah. Uh where where you where you can play one card out there with a lot of power and then play the the weaker card in order to draw the stronger card back into your hand so you can hit again. Yeah. And trying to set those things up, you run into situations where you don't get to play the ideal cards that you want to play yeah. because because it's just not time. You don't have enough strength. You're not in the right place at the right time. Yeah, or and, they've got house cards that can counter them. Um, yep. You know, there's there's cards that, that make you discard cards in your hand and things like that, mm. so they might break that combo. Right. And some, some of them are, some cards are dependent on either losing a battle to trigger their benefit or winning a battle, and so your opponent can kind of sabotage that. If they think that you're going to play, you must lose this, they might actually throw the battle, make you win it, and then you don't trigger your special effect that was yeah. more important to you than the actual battle. I'm suckering you in. Yeah. It seems like identifying the big punch that you can throw is easy, but pulling it off is really difficult, it seems. Yeah. 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 Sometimes it takes time to um, you know, march everything from one territory to combine with another army and then march the two of those combined at your at your opponent. They've got a turn there where they might, you know, punch you first. And and take and if they take that territory, you lose your march token, and so you don't get to move. Several of my combats were kind of like what you were describing. Like you were almost there. I can almost use this yeah. card effect super effectively yeah. to win this, but not quite. Right. And it should be said that when you play a card, it's just discarded from your hand, and then once you run out of cards, they come back to you. And so there are situations where you might find yourself wanting to make a weak march into a territory or getting into a little skirmish just so that you can get rid of your mm-hmm. last card and get all of your house back well, into your hand. The important except thing for the one that you played that is, you just stays played. out there. Yeah. yeah so the card you just played stays down, and every other house card comes right, back. Right, right. So you have to pay 
careful attention to what your last house card, as you're getting down there and your cast of characters, you know, you got to pay attention to what, who's the last guy I'm going to drop here. Am I going to need this guy soon? And, and should I be, you know, sometimes you're playing a, a less than optimal card, like either a combat or a combat card that's way too strong just because you want to get it out of the way. So it's not your last card. Right. Or, you know, and there's also some manner of hang it. You know, I was, I was a couple of battles that I saw where I was trying to convince somebody else to not attack a particular person because <laughs> I was going to attack them. And I didn't wanted to make sure that they didn't have all of their cards in their yeah. hand. And I'm like, if you attack him, he's going to play that card. And then I'm going to have a hard time later trying to come in at him because he's, he'll be he'll be fully refreshed. And oh, so, yeah. so, you know, throwing those little subtle, you know, or not so subtle uh, reminders to the other players that, hey, you know, maybe you don't want to punch him right now because uh, i got something going on over here. Yeah. You know, that's... Uh, yeah, I've, I've absolutely been in situations where, you know, I've, I've only got a couple house cards left and I'm a good card, you know, I see my opponent massing for some battle. I know there's a card that I'm in my discard pile that I need back. Yeah. And so I'll set up a couple of throwaway combats. Like I'll just march a footman in, you know, into a territory. And I, if I know they're not going to place uh, swords to kill him, then I can, uh, you know, just throw. Okay, I lose the battle, but I play a card and just burn through the last of my house cards so I can get them back. One thing I want to talk about is, though, that table talk moment, right, that, I'm, that I was just talking about, discussing the kind of metagame where making the deals about who's going to attack who when. Because you said earlier, it doesn't really happen that much. There's Everybody's pretty self-interested in terms of leaning, lending support to other players. My question is, have you ever played a, a version of this game where people actually, like, get up and leave the room in order to talk out plans around? Ranging houses, no you know, house assaults, no. And that kind of stuff. No, the mostly probably that it's not worth the amount of effort it would take to really <laughs> to really talk through and everything because people are going to backstab you at the earliest opportunity, even if they didn't even intend to. The Westeros cards might change things. Like there's Westeros cards that say you can't play this special. Right. Order. Yeah. Yeah. No defense orders tokens can be played this turn, and you're out of tokens otherwise. You're too low on the track. I've got to play a march token here. Or or you just have somebody's like that they, they were allies and then. And they're like, well, now you don't have a defense order token, and now I know uh, I can hurt you here. Yeah. And it's a territory they've wanted the whole time, but have been avoiding. For the record, Kevin broke his uh, truce with Nathan just right out the gate. <laughs> I remember the first time we played this thing, I set up a truce with Nathan, and um, and and we came to the point where where he's like, well, I'm going to throw all this over here because you're going to attack me. Otherwise, I'm like, no, I'm not. I just told you I wasn't going to attack you. He's, he's like, you're honoring that, you know, right, yeah. <laughs> in this game, you're actually honoring a, a, an agreement. Yeah. And so I, I kind of wonder about that because it seems like the Game of Thrones universe in a larger setting, right? I mean, this this game is designed to drive that backstabbing action, right? Right. You're going to have to break treaties, right? Mm. I, I, I kind of wonder if there could... Only if you want to win. Only if you want to win. But I mean, there is no second place in this, right? right? There is there is no second when place. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, to throw that. I'm, what, I, what I was kind of wondering is, like, could this game benefit from more of a diplomacy-style temporary alliance kind of thing and enforcement rules for those alliances. Not yeah. a war hamster. Huh? Not a war hamster group. <laughs> yeah, it would, be, it would be worth exploring that, um, you know, using opponent's ships to transport your troops and things like this that. Was one that I, this was one that I that I had thought of where, where um, maybe if you get into an alliance with somebody and you have that bridge of ships that are built out there, you could allow them to transport their troops along your ships in order to deliver them. Because, like, I, I found myself late in the game having a very strongish navy, but no troops to move around. And I'm right. like, maybe I can come down here and pick up some Malorans and throw them up right. at, at a house 
plaster. One thing that I thought might work really well for that, though, is that if you've got that bridge of ships and somebody agrees to move their troops along your bridge of ships, that you get to determine where those things ultimately come out. Right. Oh, and so if you've got an alliance with somebody going and you say, no, I'll send you over here to the House Lannister. And instead, you instead you dump them off in, in the in the middle of somewhere where you, you've just gotten their troops out of the way because, yeah, they're using your ships. They don't have they don't get to determine where your ships sit. Right. You could capture an enemy's army and dump them off in the middle of the north you yeah. know, with the, with no other recourse. There'd have to be some sort of restriction that it would have to be like an adjacent territory. Like because if you just completely threw them to the other side of the map, well, maybe they shouldn't have gotten to, in bed with you in the first. Place. Exactly. I think that they're went with the Dothraki and Eos side of the map, they'd almost have to do that. Oh, sure. To yeah. get troops across over to back and forth. Oh, yeah. 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 The other thing that I thought would be interesting is if what if what if you had some sort of mechanism in there for doing wards? Because all over all over the Game of Thrones stuff, oh, you had you had people that were taking the the kids from the other families oh, and right. holding them hostage Hostages, in this yeah. in this house. And I'm like, how could you possibly do that? Uh, you could grab their house cards. You could grab their house cards, exactly, yeah. and hold hostage one of their house cards. And if at some point you made a deal where you would return their house card to them and then they would have an extra house card to play in the game, or maybe you attack them and they just kill off your house card for the entire game. Yeah. They you, should you, do it so that doesn't they don't take the house card, they just allow it to be used. Yeah. Like it stays in the person's deck. You have to ask permission yeah. in order to actually use it. Well you could yeah. Because that, uh, that's the power, right? Yeah, I can take that away from you. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it would be something to do with using power tokens. Like, if you wanted a formal alliance, you each had to pay one power token. Or, and if you wanted to capture a, a house card, you had to pay power tokens equal to its combat strength. You know, what you could do is you could actually, like, you could have another person's house card in your possession, right? And you put down some of your influence tokens on that a house card, and then anytime they want to use that thing, they have to pay however much influence tokens you put on like that card that. in order to do it. I like that. Well, it'd have to be some way of getting them back, though, right? Well, sure. After they after they've done that, maybe it buys them back or yeah. something like that. I think you'd have to up your uh, power generation, though. Yeah, because probably. That was yeah. pretty starved, if I remember. From yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know I get into all these things about how to fix this <laughs> thing, and it's and I'm completely wrong in doing so because it, people really enjoy the game. Yeah. a lot. I mean, there's 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 not something to fix. Here, this is just this is yeah. just an alternate way of, of maybe playing it, and they're already messing around with that with the expansion decks that they're yeah. doing. So maybe we should get into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so the so the main difference switching from the base six player game over to the Dance of Dragons expansion, which is what we played, which is what we played, is that in the base game the houses are designed to have a balanced starting position. Almost every house starts with two footmen, one knight, and one boat. Except for the Greyjoys have a second boat and the Baratheons have a second boat. Okay. But otherwise, everybody has the same starting forces. So it has a balanced start. But with Dance of Dragons, it's designed to take place in, like, book five time frame. I think it's really cool that so, they can just, like, set up where in the series it takes place by alternating yeah. the cards that you have. Yes. So and, they gave you a, yeah, based on characters that have died, you have a new hand of house cards. And starting locations are completely unbalanced, and it's designed to be that way. Game of Thrones wave two. <laughs> yeah. So, so Baratheons, for instance, they still hold Storm's End, and they still hold Dragonstone. So they've got a couple locations in the south, but otherwise they're up in the north behind the Starks because it's when Stannis goes to the Wall. Right. And uh, and so Jon Snow actually fights with the Baratheons. He's a Baratheon house card in this. Great storytelling. Because there's no Starks. Right, in this expansion. The Starks are, are, are all dead. And so it's the Boltons. House Bolton is takes over the Stark pieces and, and rules the North. That's you where got, you get that Bolton and uh, Reek combo. Yeah, the Ramsey, we the Ramsey and Reek and, uh, and Roose Bolton is powerful. 
So that's way different. The other thing is that the Tyrells are stretched all the way across southern Westeros from High Garden and Old Town, where they normally are, all the way across the Reach and are actually surrounding King's Landing. The Lannisters start off with King's Landing, but none of the surrounding territories around it. So they're completely mm-hmm. surrounded from the from the get-go, and they only have like a couple of footmen in King's Landing. If um, people are not familiar with the geography of Game of Thrones, this game is an excellent way of teaching it to yes, you. Yes, let me interrupt you. That was the best thing for me, is just the geography lesson yeah. and everything. I knew some key points like the, um, uh, Moat Cain. Kaelin. Uh, yeah, is it Kaelin? Moat Kaelin, yeah. Ma- Moat Kaelin and stuff like that I was looking for, but overall it was a well, and the way that those territories, um, the way the adjacency and everything works out, they're really well designed. Like Moat Kalen's a good example that it's really hard to take Moat Kalen from the south because you can overlap support onto that one territory from the north, but you can't overlap it from the south. You have to be on two sides of, of a river to do it, which is hard enough to set up. So, from a design standpoint, it's really hard to see how they came across doing this without just so many playthroughs. Yeah. And then and then finally they decide, oh, you know what? This is a little bit overpowered. I think we need to draw this little inkling of a river right here in order to cut off yeah. this particular territory from this particular territory because there were always fights you know, that, that yeah. uh, were overpowered. In and so part. certain territories lend, to a certain, lend themselves to a certain play style. If you're in the middle of the southern part of Westeros... In the Reach, it's a great territory to raid because it borders so many other territories that chances are you're going to have some juicy target for that raid. That makes me really concerned, I suppose, that experienced players will always dominate and trounce new players at this game. And yes. it's hard for it's hard to get a good handle on this game without getting dozens of games under your belt. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. There is a, a pretty steep learning curve, but I think that you learn your lessons really quickly. Burned hand style, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You'll, you'll definitely lose your first several games, but you'll learn, like, what the thing, you'll, you'll remember the moments that broke you, and you'll remember how to avoid those. Sure. Like, you're talking about your support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You count, every, count every dot, yeah. count every <laughs> cross, cross every T, dot every I, and make sure you bring every sword. Yeah, but... Amongst, I was a newbie amongst all the uh, the experienced players, and I got some pushback from some of the more experienced players because I wasn't playing the game right. Yeah, let's talk quote, about that quote. for a second. And, and, yeah. and to that I say, fuck y'all. I, <laughs> I wanted to play, and I had the game I wanted. I yeah. think that we what we found ourselves in, just to, just to kind of clarify for, for everybody here, we were playing a six-player game, and towards the dwindling part of this game, as we were running out of time, we found that three or four of them were vying for the first place spot. Lauren and I were not the those players. <laughs> Kevin was in the hunt, and uh, Joey. Joey was in the hunt, and Nathan was was doing very well for yeah. himself, and Phil, yeah. right? Now, early on, I lost that conflict with Phil, and that put me in a position to support him for much of the game, and then turn on him at the last minute, as <laughs> I was want to do. He was playing the, playing the role of Kingmaker, not so much Kingmaker as Kingbreaker, I suppose, and deciding that he wasn't going to be it. Yeah. Um, it was the only move that I had to make. It was the only influence that I really had left on the game, yeah. apart from just wandering around the southern coast with my boats, yeah. because but, I couldn't muster troops to get back in the game. But people seem to prefer the fact that you were out of the game or just mo- wandering around the board. They, they, they seem to like that. Like, Well, yeah. It makes, sense for, it makes sense for the people who are in power to not have me in power. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. You, on the other hand, Lauren, you had the option of going in and kicking Joey out of a particular spot and, and basically keep making somebody else be the king. Um, and you opted not to. Why? Uh, on that point, Joey kept troops to deal with me. He never let his left his ass exposed. Okay. Entire, through the entire game, he never exposed himself to me at all. 
I would have pounced Hattie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he didn't. So I made Joey manageable for the rest of the board is what I did. Okay. Towards the end of the game, any move I could have made, he already countered everything. And I made promises with Nathan that I wouldn't attack him. I promised him that. This was the this was the situation, I think, was that you had promised not to attack Nathan. And we found a point where if you had, it would have really shifted the power of balance. And you kept that promise and... You know, good on you, mm-hmm. but terrible on this you. Is, <laughs> this, is two, <laughs> this is two different examples of king-making where it didn't really... I mean, it had an effect on the greater game, but but not taking an action and taking an action basically had the same effect. It decided that somebody else was going to win the game. Sure. If I had gone after Joey, I, I honestly feel that my inexperience, just because I had more power in a better position, wasn't enough to overcome Joey. Mm-hmm. I would have gutted myself. Nathan would have swept down on top of me. Or Joey would have the next turn. I was I was caught between Nathan and Joey. There wasn't an easy way out, and you were swinging around too, buddy. Yes, I knew there were sharks in the water. Yeah, there was a pl- there was a ton of stuff going down there, and I was eyeballing you. But you know, I didn't actually have anybody to put on those boats to send after you. And, and yeah. I I hit Joey. I raided Joey several times. Yeah. I, I weakened him up. I just didn't have the 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 jet spar the experience to actually make a move on it. It just seems to me that if you're talking about a game where people can get eliminated, as you said, it was really hard to fully eliminate people. And so you just have these guys that are running around and can possibly throw the game in one way or another. But ultimately... To the people who are in last place, there's no reward for doing so. So whether I had decided to, you know, help Phil out or crush Phil, mm-hmm. um, or whether Lauren decided to keep his promise to Nathan or not do so, th- we didn't get anything out of it, you know. And mm-hmm. so, and so, this is another place where maybe in this game having um, a lengthening uh, alliances so that there's some power sharing or some victory sharing to it can make uh, the people who are in last place. Have feel like they have more influence and more of a way to get back in the game or to influence the game uh, outright that benefits them as opposed to just benefiting somebody else. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I can say that out of all the games I've played, I've, I haven't really seen that situation come up where you've got a choice of you know basically who you want to allow to to win the game. Usually, your targets that the vulnerable targets are the are the vulnerable targets, and you take them. You just hit who you can. Like the last turn. Brad, you attacked, you Phil. took a castle from Phil, yep. but that was because that was the easiest castle for you to take. You would have done the same thing to me if I were exposed, most likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's, so, that's fair. Although although I had the, I had the over the course of that game, I had the history with Phil. So, right. you know, it felt good to take back. Yeah, to yeah, a little, a little bit. There. I could have gone down and I could have attacked something on Joey, or I could have, uh, you know, mm-hmm. gone down and gone after Lauren, but I didn't really have any reason to do that whatsoever. Yeah, but um, generally people, just generally the name of the game is just kind of taking targets of opportunity. Uh, that's We're, just something that I wonder about, right? Yeah. You know, if, if, if it's just targets of opportunity, it doesn't feel quite like the machinations of greater political houses. Yeah. You know what I mean? Fair enough. Um, and the other thing, though, the, the Dance of De- Dragons changes the game, is there? I believe that there is a much higher need uh, for diplomacy. Because you shorten the length of time that the game is played? You shorten the length of time, and the, because the starting positions are so imbalanced, uh-huh. like the Tyrells have, a, have some big choices to make on turn one. Because they can take King's Landing from the Lannisters, but it's kind of taxing to do so. They can also take Dragonstone from the Baratheons because they have a fleet surrounding Dragonstone and they can send the guys from the mainland if they chain their marches. 
that there, and there's mathematically there's nothing the Baratheons can do to stop it. Yeah, I think that this is one of those situations where you, where <clears throat> long experience at the game allows you to identify. Yeah. You know, I, I can see these plays three three turns in advance that this that this force will obviously be able to take that or right. will never be able to take that. Right. You know? Whereas Brad and I, I didn't see that. I had no. You're talking right. about that. I'm like, I don't even know. I'm still trying to that. figure out these cards in my hand. Yeah, right. but that that's a pretty you know obviously a powerful place to start. And so there's almost there there could be a, amongst experienced players that can see those potential moves coming. There they could be campaigning or or trying to convince I them see. to to kill the other guy or right, at least right, just right. don't kill me. Or at least know? trying to get the support of some of the weaker characters that yeah. weaker players that might be able to uh, scuttle a raid here or, or you or, know just let me have this territory. I'll leave you alone. Right, you know right. it's in your best interest to consolidate your forces as opposed to spread out. And I just think know. I just think that the game would benefit from from those deals being a little bit more. Common. Concrete. Fair you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I would be interested to, to play the game that way too, just yeah. to see um, where it goes. But honestly, when we play games of this type, you know, whether it be Game of Thrones, whether it be what, what's another uh, games of this? Axis and Allies. Thank you. Um, it's really House Lions. House Tinsley, House Cack. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's really who's playing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like any, it's like it's like diplomacy that ends friendships, kind of stuff. I don't think the Game of Thrones does that quite as much, but I did feel like after punching Phil in the balls at the end of the game, there, you know, I mean, we stood up from the table, and I'm like, sorry, I had to kill you, man, but I mean, it was my, you were the only thing I could go after. Yeah, you know? but, and it's not because it was, it really benefited me in any greater order, and he knew that, right? Yeah, it was purely, you know, anti him. Yeah, right. It's not and personal. It's just no. Business. It's not. It's not personal. It's a game. Everybody. It's, it's just a game. Despises you. <laughs> um, yeah, I've played that game with uh, some couples before. And, oh and, and that can be bad because, yeah. like, and it, invariably there's like this one couple, and every time they play, they end up having like one time they were Greyjoys and Lannisters. Like these people are going to have conflict, right? And usually very early on, and then it turns into like actual fights. That's that happened like a few times early on, but I think people mostly when they get into this, like, you gotta have. Thick skin a little bit. Well, sure, because because sure. it, it is like a completely opportunist game. It's just a game, people. Yeah, that's Dance of Dragons. But then there's a uh, four-player alternate version as well, and it takes out House Greyjoy and puts in House Aaron instead. So oh, now yeah. all four houses are kind of right on top of each other. The ha- House Aarons are right on top of the Baratheons. And then you got wait. They straight out because House Aaron doesn't exist in the in the six-player game. Does yeah, it? I believe. The historical context for this is essentially right after Robert's Rebellion, because John Aaron became the Hand of the King. That makes sense. Um, so the House House Aaron was a powerful and influential They went house. back to before the beginning of the first book. Hmm. Yes. Interesting. I, I believe that, yeah, just looking at the house cards that are in there. I mean, Littlefinger is, is in House Aaron, and, and technically yeah. in that time frame, he wouldn't really have much power in that house. But I think that you kind of have to put Littlefinger in there if you're going to have... House Aaron. I love that they're able to play around with the timeline. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a good base board game set. You know, I mean, it gives you all the tools that you need in order to just be able to tweak it and fix it with uh, a, yeah. a simple pack of cards that they can sell on the shelves. And the other thing they do is they have alternate win conditions. It's not about capturing castles and strongholds. Right. Huh. You actually have objective cards, and every house has their specific objective that they can do every single turn. And then they also have a house of hidden object or a hand of hidden objective cards that. Once you accomplish, you throw that down on the table and you say, hey, I got this many objective points yeah. for this. And it depends on how difficult it is to pull off. 
like at the Starks take King's Landing, they get more objective points than anybody else because they start farther away from it. As we were talking about the Wildlings deck earlier and how it doesn't play out in the first turn, I was kind of thinking about how a particular part of the timeline where you start the with the Wildling track at a particular strength and the very first action of the game is to have a Wildling attack and everybody has to start bidding that precious influence that you start oh, the game with yeah. in order to see where where you start you know, yeah. in, in your power center. You know, that uh, a first bid against Wildlings might be kind of... Yeah. Kind of a kind of a cool alternate theme or wild, alternate version. Wild things are a convenience of summer. It's just because it's summer that they can go have their little rebellion, go north of the wall, have some crappy trips, smoke some weed, run around naked, whatever that is, north of the wall, free of the king. Then once summer, winter comes, oh shit, summer vacation's over, kids. <laughs> south of the wall. Time to move south. <laughs> Back to school. <laughs> Seriously. You have to go to bed at 8.30 now. Well, okay. Um, I think that's a pretty good long talk about the uh, Game of Thrones board game. I'm not a fan of this genre of game for the for most part. Uh, I had a great time playing this game. Good. I had so much fun. I played again in a heartbeat. It was a great game. There's a lot of complexity and balance in that. I had a. I think it's a great game. It it basically ticks all my boxes for um, simple choices with um, great effect mm-hmm. and uh, dire consequences to the decisions that you make. Every decision feels heavy. And I love that. And I love that the that the number of choices that you're presented with are not too much. I don't particularly like the fact that um, once you get uh, knocked down, uh, you get knocked down so far. And there's not a lot of uh, uh, repercussions for it, which is why I, I keep on coming up with all, all these alternate methods for, yeah. for uh, dealing with that. But I but that aside, that that does not make the game any less of a good game, in in my opinion. Yeah, I think well, I think the risk was just with that starting Dance of Dragons expansion, because the Greyjoys start off with almost no land forces, that if you lose a major battle, you are knocked out of it. I don't think that that is the only situation where that kind of thing can happen, though. No. And so, and so I think that, that overall, the, um, the, the knocking out of a player and, and basically leaving them with very few options is a, is a long-running theme that... Uh, yeah, it could certainly happen, but you're not as exposed to that in the regular expansion. Not a lot to do with boats. Yeah. Uh, two more, a couple more things I want to add on. Um, the gameplay was fast and fluid. It didn't bog down. I didn't feel, and the complexity is the, the complexity is not in the moment. I think you're saying something about that. You, you far-reaching effects, simple decisions. Simple decisions. You yeah. only have five things that you can possibly choose from, and then or or you know one or two cards in your hand that are, are ideal for a situation. You've already got the math done, so it's you you pretty well know what you're going to do. But uh, the longer scope of the strategy is where this game really shines yeah yeah that's where i go cool anything else to add guys not at all no i took your sword (laughs) if you want to rule eternal you have to have skill and bones okay well thanks guys for coming over and recording today (laughs) oh i lost a little bit on that one um it was a good time good conversation thank you kevin for uh taking us through the uh, game of thrones board game in such depth that um yeah, it was really good. I, I enjoyed no that conversation. We are going to probably talk kaiju next month. That's the plan, I believe. Yeah. So if you guys are enjoying the show, again, we have that contest running to email us. Uh, God, what's our email address? <laughs> I have no idea. 
Email us at skillandbonesradio at gmail.com or uh, drop a comment to us on our website, skillandbonesradio.com. Or we are on iTunes now, so uh, rate and review us. How does that work? Is that how that works? I suppose that's how that works. That's what everybody says on their podcast. Mm, And again, the question that you're looking for is we've had a common name that has run through the first four episodes of this show. What is that name? If you can uh, correctly answer that, be the first one to do so. We've got a piece of terrain for you from our sponsor, <laughs> World Smith Industries. <laughs> World Smith Industries. Uh, Jim is going to. That's a good plug, plug right there. Yeah, that's a great plug. <laughs> nailed the plug. You nailed it. Thanks again, guys. Taking us out today is the best day ever band with Red Wedding. <laughs> a lot of best days ever in the Game of Thrones. What have you done? Hey, little Rob Stuck, you've married someone. The king in the north, you broke the marriage pact. Hey, young wolf, just call your uncle and hey, little Rob Stuck, crossbows. It's a nice day to start a It's a nice day for a red wedding It's a nice day to kill the stars. Winter is coming but Rob your death is near The band strikes up the reins of Castamere They'll trade their loots for crossbows, oh yeah The betting ceremony won't have the only blood Hurry up now, crossbows It's a nice day to kill a king It's a nice day for a red wedding Tell the world that I What have you done? Do you want the phrase to take me, not my son? Do you want the phrase that he made a mistake? But my firstborn's life is not yours to take. Lord, while the fray have mercy, let him go. Martin strikes again. GG!